my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea. And this is Valar Reredis. A journey through the books for people who have made the journey before. Brought to you by people who have made the journey many times. George R. R. Martin has said before, and will say it again, this series was designed to be reread and reread. We're your tour guides on this journey, this reread. But even we doing this full-time can't catch everything. So feel free to send your questions and comments ahead of time. And if you're watching live, you can ask live questions. Join us on Facebook, Flick, Discord, and Slack for discussions offline and before and after and about all sorts of other things, not just Valar Reredis. We're discussing upcoming con visits and just other TV shows and books, sports, movies, everything. Really, it's just a community of friends chatting away. It's just that Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire is probably the biggest topic of all. Check out the Isle of Faces. That's Joe Buckley's podcast. Every week they have a companion episode to Valar Reredis called Scraps and Scrolls. Also check out Nina on Tumblr. That's Good Queen Alley. Hey, Good Queen Alley is coming up this episode, isn't she? Mm-hmm. And her thoughts are in every episode of Valar Reredis as well. Join us on Patreon if you wish to support us financially. We've got lots of benefits like bonus episodes. We've got a lot of bonus episodes. And we have things like shout-outs and access to our scripts as well. So check out patreon.com and find the level and pledge the, the pledge that works best for you. This week on Valar Reredis, Tyrion 5, the gang meets the Red Viper, a.k.a. Podrick's Sigil Challenge. Arya 7, the Brotherhood versus the Mummers, a.k.a. Confessions of a Firewhite. Bran 3, the gang shelters at Queen's Crown, a.k.a. the one where Bran breaks the rules. John 5, the gang fights Summer, a.k.a. the one where John dumps Egret. And Daenerys 4, the gang meets Adario, a.k.a. the one where Yunkai goes down. Adario. <laughs> <laughs> I, by the way, at Ice and Fire Con, we had a friend, Jasmine, who did Dario mashed up with Mario. <laughs> and that's how she talked. <laughs> yep, it's excellent. Mm, the, all the, op, the, the, the cosplay opportunities that come from mashing up some two things, one, one thing with another is, it's truly limitless, I say. This uh, episode, the themes, well, the songs and music theme, as we've said, it never really leaves, but it's on the rise again. It's starting to come to the top in prominence as far as the narrative. Today, we have the real deal, the reigns of Castamere. Yeah. And perhaps the most prominent theme of all, aka Ice and Fire, that's going to come up quite a bit too today. Quite a lot of important backstory. Oberyn talks, surprisingly of all people, Oberyn talks about Tyrion's birth. Well, how does he know stuff about it? Well, it makes sense, I guess. And Tywin's plan to marry Cersei to Rhaegar comes up as well. That's old news, but not old if you're uh, going through the books the first time, huh? <laughs> and most of all, the Danny chapter raises all three of these issues. We've got Rhaegar, Summerhall, and the prophecy and her family history. So backstory, music, and uh, great family mystery stuff. We have a lot of battle today, too. Bran and John's crossover is pretty interesting, kind of an unusual device for the way the narrative is told. John fighting Fens while escaping, and then Summer fighting Fens, then escaping. Arya watches the Brother Without Banners deal the mummers a blow that has serious late-game vibes, as in it really feels like it could be a fight versus the dead much later. It's, like a, it's got vibes for that. 
And Danny outdoes them all, again, this batch, by defeating Yunkai and freeing all its slaves. That's a much bigger little thing, except that we don't actually see it, but it's a larger scale. So George presents these things, as he always does, in a variety of ways. Now, Tyrion doesn't have any battle to deal with. He's quite worried that the character introduced in his chapter will start an entire war. And fittingly, that's where we start. Tyrion 5, the gang meets the Red Viper, a.k.a. Podrick's Sigil Challenge. If you add up all the other times Podrick speaks throughout A Song of Ice and Fire, it might not add up to what comes in this chapter. Ah, I kid, I kid. We love Podrick. And speaking of, we've been ragging on Tyrion quite a lot this reread, and for good reason, although we also praise him when it's due. Heck, we even do that with Tywin. <laughs> and I think this chapter is a good example of that. Pretty much all the way through, he's good to Podrick, even telling a little while, some light wise to pump his, white light wise? White lies to pump his confidence up even more. He's given an awkward task in greeting the Dornishman and, and handles the surprise of it being Oberyn instead of Doran pretty smoothly. He drops some great one-liners and keeps his cool while the Red Viper kind of steamrolls him with insults. Only when the prince becomes even more aggressive does Tyrion kind of fire back. And even then, he still keeps it rather cordial. He doesn't raise his voice or anything. But it's also an incredibly deep chapter that gets at Tyrion and Jaime and Cersei and even Tywin's most formative shared moment as a family, the tragic death of Joanna. So when you realize Tyrion's keeping his cool throughout all this, realize that it's coming amidst some very, very painful memories that the Red Viper's just throwing around like it's nothing. So for such a heavy topic, the chapter starts simply enough. A horse wickered impatiently behind him from amidst the ranks of gold cloaks drawn up across the road. The horse was saying, start the chapter already before I... <laughs> As Tyrion notes, the group he brought to meet the Dornishman is quite lower in station overall than the visitors. Something that, you know, nobles, they notice these things. That's the kind of decorum that gets caught right away. It does not get glossed over by them. Oberyn is showing a united front of Dornish nobility. Nine of the greatest lords of Dorne is what's said here, and they're showing up with him at the capital. Tyrion's party, on the other hand, is Flemont Brax, Melon Craighall, Philip Foote, Harry Swift, Adam Marbrand. These aren't nobodies by any means. These are important Lannister bannermen. They're all Lannisters for the most part, except for Giles Rosby, who's a Crownlands lord. And then you've got guys like Braun and Jalabar Joe and Podrick. So these are definitely lower rank people. So it's interesting that for all Tywin wants to assert the Lannister regime is the sole dominant power in Westeros, he's showing a Lannister face, but it's not very potent because this is the best face he can put forward, especially not compared to what the Dornish are, are showing up for uh, with regards to backing the Martells. So it's kind of an interesting standoff. The, the power lies with the Lannisters right now, but it's an interesting kind of symbolic notation that some of this is just for show. Some of this is just a face. Tyrion immediately thinks out Joff himself should be here for this because of the lack of, of course, the imbalance in nobility. But also he thinks how Joff would just insult them. And this is a reminder of how little Joffrey is good for. He's shown an ability to act with some grace, maybe even extreme grace at times in front of the court. But even when we saw that, it didn't last as that scene of his extreme grace ended with him cutting himself on the Iron Throne and crying for his mother. That's pretty damn embarrassing, isn't it? Similar here, except that, you know, they know better than to even put him in, in this position in the first place. 
The point is you can, even on the few things you can trust Joffrey for, it, it, you can only trust him so far. Eventually, he's going to be an embarrassment. Tyrion himself, pretty decent at this. Uh, he's excellent with words, of course. And there's some really good banter in this chapter. I've, I've procured an example. Prince Oberyn had a chuckle. You've grown more amusing since we last met. Yes, but I meant to grow taller. <laughs> George, as he so often does when introducing characters, immediately gives us major foreshadowing as to what they'll do or how they'll die or whatever is important for that character, whatever makes up their arc. So it's true in the first POV chapters in A Game of Thrones, we were noticing that when Valerie started, and we're still noticing that all the way up through now, whether it's a POV character who's having their first chapter in a later book, or whether it's a non-POV character introduced early or late, this pattern seems to continue. Uh, he's doing it in an interesting way here. Um, with Sometimes he does it with, in battles. Sometimes he does it just with dialogue. Sometimes he does it with imagery. Sometimes he does it with a lot of things at once. In this case, he seems to really been leaning into the sigils to tell a story. This is some great work by Nina. There's some interesting thematic setup and foreshadowing in, the, uh, in some of the Dornish sigils. The vulture of Blackmont grasping a baby in its talons echoes the dead children for whom Oberyn has come to the capital for justice. The crowned skull of Manwoody foreshadows not only the death of Joffrey, but also the deaths of Tommen, who may be killed when Arianne and Aegon take King's Landing. Hmm. We'll see. Either or way. Or maybe before. Or, yeah, or maybe before. By the sand snakes who were yeah. there. Tying and Nymere, yeah. <laughs> exactly. The point is, they're not looking like they're long for this world. So Tommen and Marcella, yep. Also Maggie's prophecy, Illyrio's comments about Tyrion and Marcella about, you know, one side is a crown on the other side is a skull. To crown her is to kill her. All this, these things point to that. The scorpions of Corgyle. Reference the death by Scorpion of Lord Tyrell at Sandstone after Daron the First's conquest of Dorne. And of course, Oberyn and the Martells don't really recognize the authority of the Lannisters here any more than the Corgiles recognize the authority of Daron in Dorne. So that's pretty cool. And there's a lot of black and red uh, with some of these houses. The Illyrian sigil is a, is a circle, a hand on a circle of black and red, and the Corgiles are black scorpions on red. And the Gargalans have a red cockatrice with a black snake in its beak. So this is some serious Targaryen vibes, which of course the Martells would want a Targaryen restoration and have wanted a Targaryen restoration. And of course, it make that makes sense for obvious reasons. They married into the Targaryen family and if it weren't for the Lannisters, they would have Targaryen nephews and nieces and all that. Or maybe they do. Hmm, hmm. Anyway, speaking of the Targaryen restoration, even Oberyn's horse is black and red. He's literally riding a Targaryen-colored horse. Hey, Bittersteel would be proud, right? Of course, since there are so many Dornish people arriving, we're seeing their sigils and hearing some names and such, good time to tell us about them as a culture, which is tied to geography of Dorne. And of course, geography can determine a lot of things about how cultures end up and how they handle themselves, things like that. And, but Dorne is very diverse. Sometimes it's lumped together as just a place of deserts and mountains, but it's really a lot more than that. Just as we learn, the lands beyond the wall are a lot more diverse. It's not just a land of snow and ice, although that's you know, a big part of it. It's quite diverse beyond that, same as Dorne. And just as the geography is diverse, so are the peoples. 
The free folk probably have an even greater cultural diversity than Dorne does. I mean, compare the Fens to the Ice River cannibal clans. But no one moves there. There's no immigration beyond the wall. So Dorne has way more ethnic diversity, right? It used to be the connecting point between the super Pangea continent that was once Essos and Westeros as one. Andal, Roinar, and First Men are all parts of the Dornish pastiche. Now, of course, First Man itself is an ethnic catch-all for many peoples who came before the Andals. It's not really supposed to be just one race, but that distinction is too far gone to matter, especially not in this context. Point is, the Dornish men are pretty cool and pretty diverse. Here's a big quote describing them. There were three sorts of Dornish men the first King Daron had observed. There were the salty Dornish men who lived along the coasts, the sandy Dornish men of the deserts and long river valleys, and the stony Dornishmen who made their fastnesses in the passes and heights of the Red Mountains. The salty Dornishmen had the most Roynish blood, the stony Dornishmen the least. All three sorts seemed well represented in Doran's retinue. The salty Dornishmen were lethe and dark with smooth olive skin and long black hair streaming in the wind. The sandy Dornishmen were even darker. Their faces burned brown by the hot Dornish sun. They wound long, bright scarves around their helms to ward off sunstroke. The stony Dornishmen were biggest and fairest, sons of the Andals and the First Men, brown-haired or blonde, with faces that freckled or burned in the sun instead of browning. So at one point, George may not have planned on expanding the Dornish much more than he had even before this. And by this chapter, he had not perhaps scrapped the five-year gap. He said in several interviews how, in fact, it was the Red Viper's death specifically that created the need to scrap the five-year gap. He just had to show Dorne's reaction to it. It wasn't something that worked well in retrospect. To be fair, a lot of other things didn't work in retrospect, but it's notable that he specifically cites the Red Viper's death as one of the major reasons. So Dorne had to react, and it, it surely did, but we'll get to that later. So that meant, though, necessitating expanding on the world building bringing us new characters, especially the ones most interested in said reaction to his death, but others too. Some of the ones introduced here are quite important as well, like Damon Sand, who will later travel with Arianne to the Stormlands and was her first lover. But the Red Viper's lover is even more important, of course. Ilaria Sand, vastly different from TV Ilaria Sand. She's another character whose long-term fate is still up in the air in in part because of that vast difference. We didn't get her fate revealed to us on TV, probably. And she's the, the opposite of the Red Viper in many ways. She's kind of like a, a yin to his yang. She's a person of peace, and he's obviously, he calls it him, says it himself, a bloodthirsty man. So, yeah. Way back in the Game of Thrones, Jon, Jon Snow, that is, was seated in the back because of Queen Cersei and the rest of the royal family. And Catelyn certainly had something to say about that. But John uses this as evidence when talking to Mance that his turn to the free folk is sincere. And it's very believable. Here in this chapter, Tyrion thinks how, well, Ilaria's presence will upset Cersei. She can't be sat in the back like John, though, because she's with Oberyn. They're together. There's no, you know, girlfriend of John that's in the royal family that, they, <laughs> that he had to be kept separate from or had to be sat with. So this detail of Ilaria's presence, just like the retinue not matching in terms of their rank and nobility, 
this is exactly the sort of detail that gets caught, that gets noticed. In fact, I wonder if they planned this in advance, just how much they thought about it. It's like, we're going to make sure that we're sending you and <laughs> they're going to react to Olaria. They're really, that's really going to throw them off. <laughs> so, you know, they just didn't not think of that. It's too big a part of how the nobility thinks. So in the story Oberon tells later in this chapter, he points out an Elia to Tyrion marriage was an insult that even Tyrion himself should be able to admit. That implies a similar cutting point about the choice of sending the very same Tyrion to greet the Martells here in this moment. Eh. So a little bit of meta there. Heck, Oberyn is blunt with his insults, but he's also subtle with them. He's multifaceted. Had Kevin Lannister been up to it, I'd think he'd be the one greeting them, but right now he's grieving. It's funny, though, just how few other options there were. Like, well, okay, Kevin can't go. Joffrey can't go. Cersei would be a bad idea. Tommen's too young. <laughs> it's just like Tywin himself. I mean, <laughs> it would have been interesting if Tywin had gone since it was supposed to be Doran Martell, after all. But yeah, anyway, the choice of Tyrion backfires. But part of the point is that they just don't, the Lannisters just don't have suitable people for the basic job of just being a decent greeter. <laughs> you know, you'd have to think that with the rumors, with the knowledge of who Oberyn is, yeah. that someone might be like, I don't know if we should put these two party animals together. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, they're just going like, to go, they're going to hang out, get drunk together. They're going to go to the brothels. brothel. Yeah, they're <laughs> going to bond it up. Maybe that's exactly why. Because like, hey, actually, yeah. maybe that'll, maybe yeah. they'll... <laughs> Maybe yeah. this will go well. He'll, maybe he'll soften to the Lannisters knowing Tyrion. Yeah, maybe maybe Tywin had a, a different angle on this we hadn't considered. He's like, actually, those two could become friends. He didn't <laughs> imagine them uh, becoming so close that Oberyn would champion Tyrion, though. <laughs> that was that part backfired, too. It's, it's funny to consider when they were thinking about all this. Picture back when Oberyn and Doran were planning this trip, thinking... Gosh, I wonder who they're going to send to greet us. They might realize the same conundrum. The Lynchers like, who? They have nobody that they could send that wouldn't, you know, they might have thought Kevin, but they would have wondered, I wonder if they're going to send Tyrion. They might send the imp to put out in front of us. So, and if they didn't talk about it in advance on that long journey, that slow crawl for all the way from Doran all the way to King's Landing, maybe they talked about it then. They'd have not a whole lot else to talk about. So these are the little social power games the nobility plays. There are games, though, in the same sense that the Game of Thrones is a game. It can and does lead to real blood spilled, and lots of it, quote, How many Dornishmen does it take to start a war? He asked himself. Only one. Yet he had no choice but to smile. Tyrion's actually wrong, of course. There's very, very little chance a war could start over almost anything Oberyn does to a Lannister besides, you know, kill them. Even yeah, I was knowing about to say, I was like, I don't know about that. <laughs> he could do quite a lot. <laughs> Even knowing how willing he is to provoke. And the point of that is, it's this is why they knew they could send Oberyn. They know that even though he's hot-tempered and likely to provoke, they also know he could walk right up to Tywin and call him a child murderer. He could remind everyone in front of the court that, hey, Joanna was fondled by Ares. And Tywin would just have to sit there and see. I mean, maybe he wouldn't be able to keep his cool. Maybe Tywin would lose his temper, but he'd be in his best behavior. He'd be trying to be his best behavior. Instead of being Tyrion's champion, you know, Oberyn could have just in front of the court said, hey, Tywin, who's the heir to Casterly Rock these days? 
he could loudly remind everyone that shouldn't it be Tyrion, you know? And and Tywin would again have to just swallow his pride, maybe say nothing and say, hey, this is not an appropriate conversation for Core. He would just have to, you know, push it aside somehow. And why is that? Why is it that Oberyn could do these things without starting a war? It's because, well, they have Myrcella. This is everything. Without her as a hostage, they would be worried that Oberyn could provoke a war. But the Lannisters are going to have to put up and will put up with a lot of provocations because they can't allow themselves to be provoked because the Dornishmen have, oh, have Marcella. That's such a huge piece of, of the, the picture here. That is, she's a hostage. And however, if Oberyn and Doran and, and maybe some of the other high lords of Doran sat down to plan all this out and thought, oh man, you could get away with a lot and they'd still have to sit there and take it. One thing they probably didn't consider of all the things Oberyn could do that wouldn't start a war was dying. They didn't think about that probably because dying Oberyn's death can indeed start a war. In fact, it's very likely pushing for that. As we saw the reaction in Dorne to his death was violent and angry and, and they wanted to get revenge. Dying as Tyrion's champion was something they probably did not see coming as a possibility. I mean, how could they have even known Tyrion would be on trial? It's, it's pretty much impossible. So they didn't see that coming, but it is reasonable to see why they were so confident with sending Oberyn and, and not thinking anything too bad would go wrong. That hostage means so much. Now, Arian Martell, she's going to attempt to be that proverbial Dornish person, singular, who tries to start a war. Although she did have friends to help. And well, just like it only takes one Dornish person to start a war, it only takes one Dornish person to ruin a conspiracy, which is what happened with Arianne's plan, of course. But then one more Dornish person tries to start a war by himself, Darkstar. So eh, Tyrion's not wrong. He was wrong, but he wasn't wrong. Yeah. Again, at the heart of all this is Marcella. All of these cases where someone's trying to start a war, it's around her. It's the whole to crown her is to kill her. And Arianne literally tried to crown her. And when that failed, Darkstar just went for the non-figurative crowning her kills her and just used his sword. And at the heart of this, though, is revenge on Tywin, right? That's backing all of this up. That's the impetus for so much of this in the first place. One of the more cutting arguments against Tywin's style of leadership is how many debts he's left behind. Obviously, I do not mean financial debts. I mean blood debts. Lots of people hate Tywin Lannister. He's made a lot of enemies while also making himself untouchable. His enemies either can't get to him or he's just killed them. So here comes the exception, though. The Martells are owed perhaps the biggest blood debt of all. I mean, maybe outside of House Rain. <laughs> but unlike House Rain, the Martells weren't wiped out. And they can get to him. Oberyn warms up his Lannister provoking appetite by having a go at Tyrion. You know, he's just getting started. We get the anecdote of marriage offers and arriving at Casterly Rock just before Joanna's death. Tywin wanted to marry Cersei to Rhaegar and shunned the offer of Cersei for Oberyn. An interesting twist given that's come up again just a few chapters ago. On Tywin being the one to suggest it this time. Hmm, how about that? After his tale of the tale, you know, the, the tale that Tyrion supposedly had removed when he was uh, an infant, and calling out the implied insults, greeting him the moment he arrives, Oberyn just stops fooling around, no more nice viper. He bluntly declares while he's come. 
or while why he's come. Before he dies, the enormity that rides will tell me whence came his orders. Please assure your Lord Father of that. That's an I'm coming for you that leaves no doubt. Can we just point out the enormity that rides? I know, right? Great one. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't want to give him the respect of the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> and now what was that I was saying about how we should pay attention to what is said about a character when they are first introduced? <laughs> how it has the potential to tell huge portions of their story? Hence the mention of Oberon's education at the Citadel, particularly the mention of poisons. We know he poisoned Gregor, but was he dosing Tywin as well? Well, the evidence for it isn't here in this chapter, if you consider any of it evidence at all. So we'll be keeping an eye out for that as these chapters proceed. But in addition to his maesterly skills, also mentioned are his skills as a warrior, fighting in a variety of places against a variety of foes, learning how to defeat all kinds of enemies. He's lightning fast and uses poison. The nickname is perfect, isn't it? But also that explains how he's able to he knows how to fight large men. He knows how to fight small men. He's just experienced, and he's got a lot of confidence from that. And just a lot of natural confidence anyway. But the Red Viper is more than a badass come to expand the plot. This is the peak reminder of something we've been saying all along. Tywin's version of leadership and peacecrafting. It's a mistake. It's, it's an illusion. The line, a Lannister always pays his debts, is more about blood than gold. Tywin's not going to die owing anyone any money, as I said, but the blood debts he passes down, they can't handle that. They're not going to be able to afford that because the price is too high. The price is death, is, you know, payback. And those are, we need, we're talking about bodies. That's not something you can uh, easily escape. Only Tywin's ruthlessness kept that at bay. With him gone, hmm, well, we see what happens. So one of the worst things a provider can do, someone who fancies themselves the provider of a family. The last thing you want to do if you're that person is to die leaving your family with additional burdens. You want to leave this world having helped your family, having set them up for the next generation. If you're supposed to take care of a family, it's obviously as backwards as it gets to leave them with additional debts rather than some benefits, right? You can't viciously murder a powerful family's children, remove them from the royal line of succession, and expect that to go away given that family still exists and is still very powerful. Not in Westeros anyway, right? We here at History of Westeros know that as well as anyone, how rarely revenge is forgotten because that's a cycle that plays out throughout history. I mean, Blackwoods and Brackens, anyone, right? The Blacks and Greens fought each other until one side was basically out of Targaryens, right? And the dance featured a Targaryen prince who reminds us of Oberyn Martell. Prince Daemon Targaryen, writer of his own red snake, the blood worm, called Caraxes. When he was introduced, he was teased by Ilio Garcia on the Westeros.org forums. That's exactly what he called him, the Targaryen Red Viper. He's like, you guys won't be able to believe this character. One of the many parallels between Daemon and Oberyn is this quote from the Red Viper, change a name and maybe one or two details, and it could be Daemon talking about his brother, Viserys I. Why, if the gods were cruel, they would have made me my mother's firstborn and Doran her third. I am a bloodthirsty man, you see, and it is me you must contend with now, not my patient, prudent, and gouty brother. Yeah, so yeah, change Doran to Viserys, you know, maybe change the gouty part. But Viserys was in poor health, so even that's something of a similarity. And he was patient, slow to anger. 
Right. Viserys the first, uh, yeah. Damon was the opposite, <laughs> like Oberyn. Throughout Oberyn's short arc, we're going to show you even more parallels to Prince Damon. For instance, he didn't get along with Lannisters either, <laughs> suggesting that their castle be given away to one of the dragon seeds. So, yeah, this is not good for Tywin. And worse, the Tyrells also hate Oberyn, or so we're told. So Tywin not only can't allow himself to be provoked, he has to keep his in-laws from being provoked too. And they claim to have a great reason to be mad at him. Though there is serious reasonable doubt over that, because the guy's supposed to be mad about it personally, Willis, it's kind of a left turn here in this chapter when Oberyn brings up the fact that Willis and him actually get along and they exchange letters. To be fair, Oberyn himself is the source of this information, so maybe we shouldn't take that too far, but it's still very interesting. Willis, too, is interesting. By staying safe at Highgarden, he may wind up one of the last of his immediate family left standing. Generally speaking, but especially when he outlives Olena and Mace, it's another example of something potentially very different than TV, especially with the uh, in, you know Ironborn invasion and Young Griff's invasion, which weren't on TV either. So by then, also, on top of all that, the Sand Snakes are going to be doing their thing, and the Sand Snakes may not look at Willis like, oh, he was friends with our father. They may just look at him as a Tyrell that needs to die like all the others. That's what we'll have to see. But on top of the Sand Snakes, there's Dark Star. So there's just a lot that we have no idea what's coming, and it's going to be epic, and I'm excited. Tying all this back to itself, though, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Maybe Tyrion is at least right in that yeah, Oberyn could start a war by dying, which is what happens. Dor- Doran can barely contained, barely, barely be contained, that is, when that happens. Doran does shut it down, but you can tell that they, they aren't satisfied with that. The notion of Doran and war gives us some reason to consider the rest of the country. And as we often do, we try to look at what isn't present that can give us clues too, because that can tell us a bit of a mini story as well. For example, Some more work by Nina here on on what houses were absent. The Ironwoods don't ride with him. And while that might be, you know, the Ironwoods aren't supposed to get along with Oberyn because of the duel he fought with Lord Ironwood, the one that died, the one that got Oberyn his nickname of the Red Viper. But it might also be because Lord Anders Ironwood is commanding a host of Dornishmen in the Boneway. Now, this dates back to the threat posed against Stannis. Um, So. There's also no Danes, probably because, well, Edric Dane is the Lord of Starfall and he's with the brother without banners. And well, what other Danes would there be to bring up other than, you know, Darkstar, who is from a separate branch and his reputation is one of infamy. So he's not exactly a good guy to bring along. They probably don't like him in the first place. And as far as uh, Oberyn and the way he talks about Willis, I think is super interesting the Tyrells, do they really worry that much about him? Obviously, Olena talks bad about him a little bit, and Mace Tyrell is, is out downright haughty about him. But it's interesting that the Tyrells are probably going to have more reason to hate the Lannisters than they will to hate the Dornishmen, especially after Oberyn's dead, because he's the one they really have a problem with. Now, maybe that'll all change because the Sand Snakes give the Tyrells new reason to hate them. But it's entirely possible that the Tyrells will realize, as they had before, that Doran isn't really the big enemy. It's, it's the Lannisters. But with Danny and Fagon and all these other players coming into the game, it's really hard to guess how it will all fall out. 
Another little point here, um, Oberyn doing like a lot of people do, feeling out Tyrion as a possible ally. The story Oberyn tells clearly puts Cersei, Tywin, and the Lannisters more generally in the villain roles, right? The Rock is kind of like a dungeon. Tyrion or Tywin barely interacts with his guests, shuts Tyrion away down in the depths of his castle like his newborn son. And Cersei abuses Tyrion and explicitly hopes for his death. I mean, this is... Tyrion's a baby. Cersei has... Tyrion couldn't have done anything to Cersei by this point other than create the perception that he's responsible for the death of their mother. But where would Cersei get that impression? Did she think of it on her own? Or was it something that her father kind of led her to believe? Tough call. Jaime doesn't feel that way. Jaime's protective of Tyrion from the get-go. So Oberyn makes it clear that with the Willis thing, he can be he can be surprising as an ally. He's like, don't, you know, don't think of me as an enemy necessarily. I can make friends too. And he showed how he helped Willis. He sent his maester to Willis. He's like, look, I'm, you know, not, I'm not all violence and, and chaos. I could, be a, I could be an ally. So very interesting with Varys and Danny in mind and consider George R. R. Martin's original plan to have Tyrion get, you know, wolfish. There does seem to be a pattern of people thinking that they can sway Tyrion to their side, which is interesting because that means they're trying to turn him against his own family. Only kids who were really awful or kids who had really awful parents, and the two of those go together sometimes pretty often, do that. No one's going to come up to Sansa and try to bribe her to attack her family, right? That's, you don't, you can't get Arya to turn against her family. And the reason people think they could get Tyrion to turn against his family is because they can look at Tywin Lannister and look at Tyrion and go, there's no way he's treated well. (laughs) There's no way that guy with all his pride treats his son well. And they are right. So so that creates an opportunity. It's like, well, if Tyrion is treated badly by his family, maybe we can win him to our side. But you would never even try that with a son of Ned and Kat. You would never try that with a grandson or granddaughter of Olenna Tyrell. I mean, these are just certain things that, certain opportunities to corrupt somebody that aren't, don't exist because of their upbringing. But with Tywin, hmm, you can get people to turn on Tywin because he has not, you know, uh, inspired loyalty in Tyrion. He has in other people in his family, to be fair. I mean, Kevin is going to be ultra loyal. Kevin would never turn on Tywin. And you might say, lots of families turn on each other in A Song of Ice and Fire, right? Am I, am I exaggerating here? Well, yes and no. But honestly, if you really break that down, it's mostly brothers fighting brothers or uncles fighting nephews and things like that. Parents fighting their own children and children fighting their own parents is far less common. Sometimes children murder their parents to take the lordship, things like that. But it's, it's not very common. And when it does happen, it's situations like this, usually where the, the father, the lord who gets knocked off, is usually scummy. Sometimes it's the kid that's scummy, but anyway. As part of the interaction with Oberyn, we learn Tyrion was close with his uncle, Jerrion, who called him Imp. Perhaps the only person to call him Imp and mean it affectionately other than perhaps Jaime. Jerrion, through Tyrion's memories, tells us that Tywin lost the best part of himself when Joanna died. That's a rough thing to hear. And you can almost feel it from Tyrion when he thinks how he himself had put Lady Joanna in her grave. This is this is pretty subtle, but it's deep and powerful in its sense of guilt. Like Tyrion's just walking along and people are like, hey, by the way, <laughs> when you were born, your father and your mother died. Your father was alive, but, you know, 
the best part of him died too. So, geez, what a thing to put on a little boy that you killed your mother and you half killed your father. And of course, that's, well, Tyrion's going to finish the job later this book. And it's, it's also interesting how this comes from Oberyn, who tells this really harsh story and adds to what Tyrion already knew about how little his family thought of him outside Jamie. Oberyn flat out says that Cersei says he killed my mother when he was there during that visit. This reveals to us, if we're going to put our, ourselves in Cersei's shoes for a minute, Cersei has always hated Tyrion. I mean, always, like from the second he was born. And a few years after this, she's going to get Maggie the Frog telling her the Valonqar is the boogeyman, and she thinks that's Tyrion too. Now you can kind of see why she would immediately lean into thinking it's Tyrion, not, you're not Jamie, because she's so, so predisposed to hating Tyrion in the first place. So when 11 or 10-year-old Cersei meets Maggie the Frog, it's no wonder that she, pro- she processes what Maggie tells her the way she does. It's also difficult to, to think about this in regards to Cersei. I mean, it's evil as heck. She's twisting her little brother's penis until he screams. I mean, damn. But how much of that is, is Tywin's influence, right? Again, though, I have to say, Jamie doesn't feel that way. Jamie defends him. So we get the note that from the get-go, not only has Cersei been awful to Tyrion, but Jamie has been genuine. His love for Tyrion is also just as early born. Yeah, so it's, it's going to be even more powerful when Tyrion splits from his family, considering, well, he's got more reason to, given what he hears about Cersei and his father here. But on another hand, it gives him even more reason to be thankful and love Jamie. Perhaps the biggest thematic quote gotcha here is that this tale, a uh, tale of Oberyn's, refers to how the rumors at the time were that baby Tyrion was, quote, Lord Tywin's doom. And indeed, Ty- Tyrion does kill him just many years later. Not, you know, not baby Tyrion doesn't do a killing of Tywin in that way. So prophecies, or maybe in this case, rumors is more apt. It's not really a prophecy, but Either way, these things work on their own time. It's just how it goes. Tyrion's birth itself had a bit of prophecy quality to it, too, didn't it? All the city talked of was the monster that had been born to the king's hand and what such an omen might foretell for the realm. Famine, plague, and war, no doubt. Tyrion gave a sour smile. It's always famine, plague, and war. Oh, and winter, and the long night that never ends. Well, those things didn't come with Tyrion's birth, but damn, that is uh, very true. I mean, those things are coming, right? Famine, plague, war, winter, the long night that never ends. Those definitely, all those things. We've talked about them all separately and together. Lots of episodes and time spent about the oncoming plague and how our famine and how it's going to cause cannibalism. Plague, of course, comes with that. War, of course. Obviously, winter and the long night. Hard to need to explain that. Uh, so Nina points out that Dorne being divided into three parts is kind of like uh, Daron the First paraphrasing Caesar. And that makes sense. Uh, Daron the First's book on the conquest of Dorne is a nod to Caesar's Debella Gal- Gallico, which is his own book. He wrote his own book on the conquest of Gaul, which is, that's what that translates to. That's pretty cool, huh? So Tyrion had been using his humor to disarm and it had been, it's, it was going pretty well, but you can't joke the Red Viper out of his quest for revenge. I mean, that's not going to work. So, so after the mask of cordiality is dropped, Tyrion goes back to his more familiar threatening Lannister sarcasm, and we get a little, uh, little quote here. 
Chitaya's on the street of silk has several girls who might suit your needs. Dancy has hair the color of honey. Marais is pale white gold. I would advise you to keep one or the other by your side at all times, my lord. <laughs> well, that's funny because if you recall, Nina suggested that it's a, there's a very good chance that Marais and Dancy are... Tywin's daughters, bastard daughters. So <laughs> this would be funny because the suggestion is that Oberyn requests a beautiful blonde woman. And that is probably uh, an oblique or maybe not so subtle nod to Cersei that Oberyn is requesting Cersei. But instead, accidentally, he's offered her, yeah, or half-sisters they would be. Yeah, half-sisters. So anyway, that's kind of funny. So there's a little a uh, little bit of a parallel to Oberyn's unexpected reaction about Willis, how he actually becomes friendly over it and, and doesn't react the way Ty- uh, Tyrion expects. It's kind of like Davos confronting Stannis about conf- choosing Robert over Ares. It's this thing that's supposed to elicit an angry reaction that actually goes completely the opposite direction and ends up being a, uh, a positive. Of course, uh, Stannis does seethe initially about that. But then a few minutes later, promotes Davos to hand. So <laughs> Stefan B from Flick jokes about Bronn's excellent eyesight here, how he's, you know, he's the one that's able to identify the, the sigil flags first. And it's funny to think about that in light of, I don't know, gosh, what else does, what does Bronn do on TV that uses eyesight that's important? I don't know, shooting dragons in flight maybe? Yeah. Probably not, but that is funny. One line from Tyrion that has a little bit of humor to it comes up here. He would have to make a point of being on hand when the Red Viper was presented to the king. Which, of course, that's a turnaround because at first he's like, oh, we don't want Joffrey here because he's going to embarrass us. But by the end of the conversation, but after he's endured all those insults, he's kind of he's kind of ready for Joffrey to be like, actually, it'd be, it'd be good if Joffrey insults this guy because he deserves it. I wish, yeah, we would have, it's too bad George didn't make a point of us being on hand for that. We, we do not get that scene. <laughs> Not only does the Red Viper scorn Loras Tyrell's skills, but he makes a great argument in the process, suggesting, yeah, how many real battles has he fought in? And Oberyn, again, is like, we know that he's fought in a lot of battles. And, well, and, and, and apparently he was overseas during Robert's Rebellion. Uh, that's, that's long been like a question, like, how, did, how come Oberyn didn't fight in Robert's Rebellion? Well, that's why it's mentioned that he started his own sellsword company and spent time overseas, because it can explain that he was, say, very far east. Maybe he, the company he was in was so far to the east that they didn't hear about the war till it was over. After all, Robert's Rebellion wasn't particularly long as far as civil wars go. Yeah, because you know he would be involved oh, yeah. with his sister there. And he tried to get it going again. When he got back, he was like, all right, Doran should be raised for Viserys. But that got shut down. Still, it makes sense. It's not, a, it's not strange. I mean, think about how slowly Danny heard about Robert's death. It was the end of A Clash of Kings that she heard about Robert's death. And Robert's death happens like early middle a Game of Thrones. So I'm not saying Oberyn was necessarily all the way in Karth, but he could have been. And you can see how news can travel slowly. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, onward. Arya Seven, the Brotherhood versus the Mummers, a.k.a. Confessions of a Fire White. 
George gives us an example of how to start a chapter on the run with quickness. So let's keep on theme and do the same. The man on the roof was the first to die. And we're off. Ten one-syllable words, but telling you a lot. More men will die because it says the first to die. And the one who just died did so with some fanfare. Either the roof is really tall and his, the fall killed him or someone made a great shot with an arrow or just something else. And it's a one-sided battle. The Brotherhood comes on the mummers entirely unawares and have a plan to maximize the damage. Basically, they, they shoot fire arrows into the sept, which means the mummers have a limited amount of time. If they don't come out, they're going to burn to death. So they have to charge outwards and the Brotherhood is ready for that charge. And they make the charge more tempting. They make the brother, they tempt the Brotherhood into that charge by concealing most of their army, most of their group a short distance off. And when the mummers charge, the Brotherhood charges, kind of counter charges, you could say, from the side. So what's happening is the mummers find themselves charging into arrow fire while from the side men on horseback come charging at them at the same time with flaming swords. Well, two of them have flaming swords anyway, Barak and Thoris. This really, this scene has serious, serious vibes for something we could see much later in the series. Instead of the mummers, think of them as undead. Think of a small group of zombies, whites, whatever, attacking a small target and they get attacked by a small group of men. I mean, the battle happens at night. It's got flaming swords. The mummers are dressed in black. They're not, none of them have names. They're all nameless characters. None of the mummers out of all the ones we recognize, none of them are here. You've even got Dothraki here, which gives you vibes from what we saw in season eight. And of course we predict the Dothraki, you're going to come over with Daenerys. That's not even a TV thing to predict that the Dothraki are going to come with Daenerys and help fight the undead. So we get a Dothraki with bells in his, and, and braids in his hair, catch on fire, Bells and fire, right? That certainly is like, an, uh, that has a little bit of a different meaning when you uh, see that this time, this read through. Whites are really vulnerable to fire. And, you know, I never really thought about how Dothraki are too, but with the hair flying everywhere, oiled braids, right? <laughs> Seems like a real disadvantage in this kind of fight. Now later, of course, it's not the Dothraki aren't going to be fighting against the Westerosi, not when there's undead around anyway. I imagine that the Dothraki alongside most of Westeros will come together to fight against the undead, the living versus the dead. But of course, there's going to be Dothraki versus Westerosi before that too, and maybe after it as well. Still, again, this, the serious vibes about what we can see as far as an undead example, I think it's uh, something I never really considered in prior rereads, but this time through, it's, it's very strong. Arya watches this battle, not with detachment, not with fear, but with interest. Like a student, like the student she'll be at the House of Black and White. She's observant, she's looking to improve, she's looking for pointers, you can almost see her taking notes. <laughs> but she's also a little petulant that Ned Dane gets to fight in the battle and she doesn't. She's not much, he's not much older than me. So this eagerness to be in battle, it reminds us of Jamie, Victorian, Robert. In fact, Barristan, in a few chapters from now, is going to say, Rhaegar never loved the Song of Swords like Jamie Lannister or Robert Baratheon or things like that. He names these same two characters and, you know, Barristan doesn't know Victorian, although he, uh, he might <laughs> in the Battle of Fire, but getting ahead of ourselves. It, Arya, it's interesting that Arya has this quality of just, she legitimately likes fighting. You know, it's, it's a rare trait, but you would, mostly it's associated with men because men are the warriors. So George is, is kind of 
flipping that a bit and giving it to someone like Arya. I don't even think Brienne loves fighting as much as Arya does. Uh, Brienne's kind of, she doesn't love it like Jaime, but she's not someone who's like a reluctant warrior either. Anyway, the Mummers are attacking a Sept again. Sad to say they are both tempting and easy targets, meaning, well, Septs, churches, they just have wealth just sitting there. The Vikings had the same kind of astonished reaction to, they just leave this sitting here? No one's protecting it? Just these guys with no weapons? It just doesn't make sense to them. It's baffling. The mummers are probably sim- thinking similar things like, geez, this, they just make it so easy. Look at all this silver. It's just sitting here. People don't just rob seps in normal times. That's the reality of uh, when things aren't thrown into chaos and war. Seps are just, they don't need to be protected. Everybody, almost everybody worships the seven and, and reveres them. And this is the kind of thing that's just unthinkable. Many of the mummers are captured and hanged. And, you know, there's no need for much of a trial. The Lord Barrack personally witnessed their crimes. So that's pretty straightforward. Law and common sense works very straightforward here. There's neither a chance of redemption for these men nor a shred of doubt that they're guilty. So justice is easy to do. Consider that these parts likely haven't seen war since Robert's Rebellion. That's, well, that's part of why think sacking seps is so unthinkable and how they haven't had to worry about it. I mean, during Robert's Rebellion, like, war would have been really bad if it came here. But neither Robert's men nor Ares's men were going to sack septs. No one would do that on either side. Maybe you might have the occasional Northmen that might get carried away and do that like the Karstarks have. But there were roving bands of angry Karstarks during Robert's Rebellion, as far as we know. They were all pretty well-led. They were following Ned around and behaving more like normal soldiers, I suppose. So in this era, though, this short-lived era of the War of Five Kings, this kind of thing is somewhat normal because things are just that bad. And it's going to get worse because winter's coming. And when it does, and people have a need to pray, well, a lot of these houses of worship will be destroyed. They won't have been rebuilt. Not to mention the, all the priests who have been killed. The holy men, the population of holy men will be smaller. It'll be a, yet another sign piled on of all the desolation and desperation facing Westeros, especially in this general area, which is, you know, the Riverlands. Nina says that on reread, the rise to power of the High Sparrow is clearly tied to things like this. The brothers who come march on King's Landing demanding justice and protection are saying, look, the faith is, was disarmed back in Magor and Jaehaerys' time And now we need to defend our houses of worship. We are being slaughtered and the law is helping people like the mummers. It's terrible. I mean, this is, first of all, the Lannisters come and take their milk and honey and wine and their cattle and destroy their vineyards. And now Tywin's hirelings are taking what's left, what little is left. And again, blame Tywin. He's the one who brought these men overseas in the first place, all because of a simple provocation. Yeah, I, it, it blows my mind so much that some, some of this gets blamed on Catelyn for seizing Tyrion. Even if you think that wasn't the right move, expecting this result, even if you know Tywin's going to go really far, is, uh, is a bit much. <laughs> the guy to blame is Tywin. The title Elder Brothers mentioned here. Of course, it's not the same elder brother encountered by Brienne, but the repetition of these forms and titles helps understand the ways in which the faith exists out in the world, apart from the, the, the highest, most visible bits like the High Septon and such. And that's important because like we just said, 
the sparrows and the high the high sept the new high septon high sparrow and all the the poor fellows and all that's got obviously rising in importance hasn't really started to peak yet but we can see the signs of it here as Nina points out this is setting the groundwork for all that and speaking of humanity fighting together I do worry about how the Relore worshippers and the sparrows worshippers of the seven are going to get along but there is a chance they can coexist if this scene is any indication, right, the Relorist Brother Without Banners is rescuing a sept from what is effectively a foreign invader, though, yeah, again, brought by Tywin. But still, at the end of it all, not only did the Brotherhood save them and rescue a few of the priests, but they give them some money to help them rebuild. And of course, I keep bringing up the others and Winter because the Brotherhood and their connection to Relore seems likely to play a part in fighting against Winter and the others and all that. Nothing like facing Ice Whites with Fire Whites. Well, a Fire White. <laughs> and while Beric apparently won't be around to face them, given that he gives his life force to Stoneheart, but maybe it's what John will be, meaning John could very much be a Fire White. Or maybe several someones will be Fire Whites. Interesting to consider that. It could go beyond Beric. You know, we've, Catelyn, of course, is, is another one. But fun that that's something that Catelyn and John will have in common. <laughs> okay, we have more in common than you thought, Cat, stepmom. So here's a, a good example of information. I mean, the term fire white is somewhat new in the fandom. And of all the people to coin the term, well, it's almost coined directly from George R. R. Martin himself. Here's a quote directly from him, 2017. Poor Beric John Darian, who was set up as the foreshadowing of all this, Every time he's a little less Barrack. His memories are fading. He's got all these scars. He's becoming more and more physically hideous because he's not a living human, human being anymore. His heart isn't beating. His blood isn't flowing in his veins. He's a white, but a white animated by fire instead of by ice. Now we're getting back to the whole fire and ice thing. Thanks, George. <laughs> fire and ice, there you go. That's pretty interesting, but it says a lot about John too. I mean... He's talking about how he's becoming more and more physically hideous. His memories are fading. And he's, he's directly calling it foreshadowing, quote unquote, of all this. What he's referring to is John's death. And because this was in 2017, right? Mm, yeah. Huh. So on top of all these ice and fire themes, we, this reflects a concept we've talked about a lot. The notion that various forms of magic have overlap in this world. Prophecy comes from different sources, for example. And now, well, we got raising the dead. I mean, think of all the different ways the dead are raised in the Song of Ice and Fire. You got the others doing it. You've got Melisandre uh, maybe doing it. You definitely have Thoros doing it. You have Cold Hands, who's a different form of it than the, the Ice Whites that the others raise. Maybe just two different types of Ice Whites. Who knows? We don't exactly have the, the handbook on all this. But then you also have Kyburn and and you know, the mountain that rides or the enormity that uh, rides. <laughs> I mean, in Beric, like we said, Beric doesn't seem like the whites raised by the others. They don't talk. They don't have much resembling agency. They seem more like animated corpses, though, hey, don't forget, they do seem to have some memories given the coordination shown by the two at Castle Black, Jay for Flowers and Othor. Remember, they go for the Night's Watch leadership. That's not a coincidence. Beric seems like a parallel to cold hands, like we said, raised, who was raised by the magic of the old gods, probably Blood Raven, if you ask me. And since George loves synchronicity and we're just getting the scoop on Beric and how he works, that means we can expect to meet cold hands soon, right? Right. 
seven chapters from now, in fact, when those two forms come together, the walking dead of the others and the walking dead of, well, whatever Cold Hands is. I just went over that. An Ice White, sure. <laughs> Before that, though, we'll return to High Heart and hear her chat with Thoros and Lem and get a little bit more about Beric. Not all the Brother Without Banners has accepted that Beric is the walking dead. Lem chalks it up to Thoros being the, you know, the best healer, no better healer, he says. And, and Beric, despite his growing lack of humanity, gives, gives Lem like a side eye. Well, yeah, he's only got one eye to do it with, but he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's like, even brave men can deny what's right in front of them. <laughs> Lem has been to High Heart. He's seen the ghost of High Heart. He's seen the prophecies come true, but this is too much for him. So it's, it's really interesting because Arya, for example, more so than perhaps any other character, literally almost perhaps any other character, is really good at just accepting things for what they are. She doesn't sugarcoat. She doesn't try to lie to herself. There's something she's confused about, like one exception, her wolf dreams, right? I wouldn't say she's not accepting it, though. She just doesn't understand it. Maybe a part of her doesn't accept it, but I think mostly it's just she just has no idea what's going on, and that's the bigger factor. Heck, she's, when she does figure out her skin-changing powers for what they are, does anyone think that's going to scare her? I don't. I think she's going to be like, yeah. <laughs> she likes being powerful and dangerous and skilled. It's, it's partly because she's lived so long in fear and as a, you know, thinking of herself as a powerless mouse and all that, she wants to never be in that place again. She wants to always be able to take care of herself, never live in fear, and more than that, protect other people who might need it. But even she is a little afraid of Beric. I mean, of course she is. Arya looked at him warily, remembering all the tales told of him in Harrenhal. Lord Beric seemed to sense her fear. He turned his head and beckoned her closer. Do I frighten you, child? No. She chewed her lip. Now check out how similar this is to this part in the ugly little girl chapter when she finds the room or is led to the room full of all the faces and when she's getting ready to put one of them on, well, here we go. Masks, she told herself. It's only masks. But even as she thought the thought, she knew it wasn't so. They were skins. Do they frighten you, child? Asked the kindly man. It is not too late for you to leave us. Is this truly what you want? Arya bit her lip. She did not know what she wanted. So do I frighten you, child, versus do they frighten you, child? And her biting her lip and not being afraid. Now... Arya's not really afraid of Beric's appearance. The head caved into the temple, the raw red pit of his missing eye, the, the shape of the skull beneath his face. It's a little creepy, but it isn't really afraid of him. She's not really afraid. Or really, maybe she is afraid briefly, but masters it quickly. And she's not going to be afraid of the kindly man when, he, uh, when he, he presents his skull face. It's even more skully than this. This is, this is like a little bit of skin covering a face, but the illusion the kindly man presents her with is a full-on skull with a worm coming out of it. And we all know how she reacts to that. She tries to eat the worm. <laughs> so this is a lot like what Bran was taught. I don't know if Ned Stark ever taught Arya this. We know he taught Bran this, but she surely got the lesson anyway, whether it was given to her or not. She's brave when something frightens her, right? It's a recurring theme. She feels the fear, but then deals with it. If she didn't feel fear at all, well, that, that would be worried because that's... That's the province of, you know, sociopaths and the like. Never feeling fear at all? That, that's not good. Arya is just someone who feels the fear and, and masters it. She controls the fear. It does not let her control her. That's, that's a good thing. That's something to, to look up to. That's something to embody. 
in, in, in oneself. Like we can all be, we can all use a little of that, right? Maybe when you get afraid, something scares you, being able to master it, that's a, that's a good lesson. Arya is a killer because of her skill. When she's sitting there going, I can see how arrows would be useful too. She's not like, I'm gl- I like arrows because how good they are killing people. She's noticing how effective they are and how useful they are. It's not like, oh, great, I can do wreak more havoc and kill people with this. It's just more of a logistical thing, more of an, a, a functional thing. She also doesn't have major qualms about killing, but that's, hey, these are people like the mummers she's watching get killed. You're not gonna, no one's gonna have qualms about that, really. Arya will wonder if Thoros can bring back her father. And boy, that's a sad moment, isn't it? And I wonder too if Bran's gonna tell her when they ever eventually meet again, I hope, that he's gone to see their father through the weirwood trees, right? He's seen visions of, of their dad and he's even seemingly responded. And by the time this, they, Arya and Bran meet again, Bran will probably have explored that a little further. So he might have some interesting things to say to Arya and Sansa and maybe John and, and who knows. George creepily suborns children's books with the line from Beric, are you my mother, Thoros? Whoa, that is, that one really gets me. From there, we get Arya wondering if her brother will even want her. And damn, that hurts too. Beric says, even Beric, the undead, is like, why would you think that? She decides, after thinking about it, that Rob won't mind her appearance. That's part of what he's like, well, Rob, I'm all dirty and gross, you know? And he, she realizes, okay, Rob won't mind that, but, but her mother will. It's so heartbreaking to think how detached she is from her family and to think that, Arya, your mother is absolutely not going to care one little bit that you're dirty. Uh, your hair is messy. That is, she's going to be so, so happy to see you. Uh, well, would be. And even Undead Beric is like, the king, your brother, is definitely going to ransom you, right? It's, he's baffled by that, but we're, bafflement isn't really the emotion that I would feel because it's just so sad that Arya doesn't understand what's happening and has such a loss from her family. She's had these identity issues, so many different names. Her age is part of it too. Just being a little naive is a little part of it. But her feeling of isolation is, resembles what's going on with Sandor. It's part of why Sandor and Arya are going to make such a good quote-unquote team. Arya's feeling alone. Uh, she's worried that her family won't have her back. She's not meeting Westerosi feminine standards. She's angry at Gendry for wanting to stay with the Brotherhood instead of smithing at River Run. Thoros makes it clear that Sandor's lost his purpose. Right? That's a big part of what's wrong with him, where he needs, he needs to have a goal in life. He's fled from the Lannisters. He's got nothing to do, nowhere to go sleeping drunk under a tree. That's how they find him, right? And yeah, so together, it's almost like Arya and Sandor are going to help each other find new purpose, even though that's not really what their goal is. <laughs> it just kind of works itself out that way. This dedication to justice upheld by the Brotherhood is seen with Sandor because he comes to menace them. And Beric, his leadership so powerful, he's, he does not let them kill him. He's like, look, the Lord of Light said Sandor needs to live. That's it. Period. It doesn't matter if he's threatening us. doesn't matter if he's a little bit of a risk to us. What the Lord of Light says takes precedent. And of course, Sandor just keeps going until he kidnaps Arya. Now, he was probably going to try anyway, because you know, like we just talked about, he's kind of aimless, has not much to live for. But the fact that he hears Beric say that they won't kill him probably helped his confidence a little bit. <laughs> it certainly didn't hurt. 
There's talk of shooting his horse and we're all thankful that didn't happen, I'm sure. Stranger is a good horse. Even Angai says so. That's a good horse. And, and then Lem agrees. They'd rather kill the hound. But this is a, another reminder of how differently the Brotherhood operates because of Beric's strong leadership and presence. They would have just shot him. They would have killed him. Angai was ready to do it. Mm, just as we're talking about Arya returning to her family and her asking Beric to swear that he'll or help her return to her family, Tom starts singing songs. And after a few titles, Lord Hart rode out on a rainy day, which Nina thinks foreshadows Rob and his men riding out in the rain for the twins. Definitely sounds right to me. When Willem's wife was wet. Oh, hey, there's, there's a title. Reminds, uh, is a, perhaps a, a note to Jane riding out in the rain to beg Rob to take her with him. Remember, that's what happens. Jane rushes out and right as Rob's leaving and they have one last kiss. And then the song, The Mother's Tears is mentioned, which probably foreshadows Catelyn the night before she's killed with her, you know, she's, she's crying and all that. That all foreshadows one of the biggest songs in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, The Reigns of Castamere. At the time, it seems almost, it's more straightforward than a lot of things in terms of, it's a song about Tywin Lannister completely wiping out a family. <laughs> and well, that uh, has some resonance in the, in the cur in current times. And well, more on that later, but clearly it's foreshadowing for the Red Wedding. That's, that's hardly needs explaining at this point. When Tom stops all that singing, Gendry offers to join the Brotherhood. They, of course, try to deter him to saying, hey, man, this is, are you sure? This is kind of a bad idea, isn't it? And, but once he fights through their deterrence, they're enthusiastic. They're like, all right, man, yeah, if you want to join, we could definitely use you. Your skills are really valuable. There's some dark humor when Beric says, you would do better serving Lord Tully at River Run. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> he probably wouldn't. That place is about to go through a siege. And then at the end of the siege, it's going to be passed on to House Frey. So mm. it's a stirring moment that shows why people are willing to fight for a good cause, even when it's desperate, right? It's something like, it's the same kind of... Uh, same kind of feeling that comes from people who are still willing to stick with Stannis. And he channels his uncle Stannis a bit when saying that their dedication to justice matters a lot to him. You know, and he gets knighted. I kind of forgot that he's Sir Gendry, Knight of the Hollow Hill here. And he also joins in part because he liked how they stayed true to Robert. This is obviously huge because that's his dad they're staying true to and, and he doesn't even realize it. And he's with them now. So he's, he is following in his father's footsteps, sort of, or at least following in the footsteps of people who were following his father's yeah, something like that. It's a good example of how things go so much differently for Gendry in the show. So this is, I've said that several times today. Today is the day of, of different from the show plot points, apparently. Because, yeah, obviously Gendry, very different in the show. Uh, I wonder what he's going to think of Lady Stoneheart, you know, for example. He may not be happy that he's the one who saves Brienne, yet Stoneheart just not long after strings her up. But, of course, we know Brienne is let loose from the noose. So whether Gendry is one of the ones who decides to break from Stoneheart or not, like Angai does, like Ned Dane does, he'll probably wind up fighting the undead like so many of the other Brotherhood do. I mean, he does kill Biter with a spear, but maybe we'll see him with a hammer later on. He does have a forge to work on. Maybe he'll make himself just that. Joe Buckley agrees with the vibes of... Uh, 
the undead vibes from the mummers here and seeing how, especially because, I mean, the battle happens at night. I mean, it's a, you, you can see flaming arrows, flaming swords. I mean, we're going to be seeing a lot more of that when the undead are on the rampage. So, yeah, I'm not the only one to, to notice that for sure. Okay, so a little more about Barracks as far as his detail and how he works and all that. Here's a quote. Lord Barrack himself did not eat. Arya had never seen him eat, though from time to time he took a cup of wine. He did not seem to sleep either. His good eye would often close as if from weariness, but when you spoke to him, it would flick open again at once. Yeah. Not only is she thinking about what he can do to the, the brother or to the mummers and, and as a as a Avenger, but she's thinking about how it relates to her father and bringing him back. Now, what does this mean for John, though? That's another big point. Like, Arya's not thinking about that. Of course, she doesn't have any idea that John's going to die later. Is this, is Beric's lack of sleep connected to Melisandre's lack of sleep? Is this a byproduct of death or, or being connected to R'hllor? Meaning, is Melisandre the undead? Is that what her glamour is hiding? Maybe. I mean, she's definitely got extended age. So maybe that's just a crossover. Maybe that's similar, but not quite the same. Same with Cold Hands. We have that same question. Robert Strong, Stoneheart, so many undead. George manages to conceal the possibilities of John. Obviously, if we just had one undead character, we would base almost everything we think about John's future on that one undead character and be like, well, this is our one example to look at. But we have lots of examples of what the undead look like. It's tricky, but there are some common themes like forgetting your memories, forgetting who you are. I mean, Beric talks about very basic things like forgetting his castle. He, he doesn't remember where his castle is. He doesn't remember where Blackhaven is. He doesn't remember who he was going to marry. That's in part because he's been killed six times. And well, when he dies the seventh time, it's because he gives his life up. <laughs> Again, Ground out. What's that? I said he browned out. He browned out. It's funny too how George sneaks in the seven there. It's not like the seven as in the faith of the seven, but the number seven for the number of times that Beric dies. But he, he also does that with Victorian. When Victorian is doing that, burns those virgin sex workers and the ship is an offering to both R'hllor and the drowned god, well, he chooses seven of them. So it's like he's also giving a nod to the seven. Uh, yeah, so we got all these like, and that's... a pretty important here to think about the, the pastiche of all these different religions coming together because it's an area ruled by the faith of the seven when the knighthood is an institution of the faith of the seven, but they're all R'hllor followers, but they live in a place built by the old gods. So yeah, that's pretty cool how it's all coming together, which to me also says a lot about how humanity, including these different religions, are going to have to come together to fight against the others couple other thoughts, uh, random bits here. It shouldn't be lost in us that a poor orphan from Flea Bottom just became a knight, meaning Gendry. And Joe points out that careful, Davos, that social mobility championship belt you wear might not be safe after all. That's a good point because Davos went all the way from commoner and Flea Bottom to hand of the king, but Gendry might, might go all the way from the same low beginning to the Lord of Storm's End. Maybe, maybe not. That could be that could be Edric Storm. Again, TV show Gendry is not our guide here, but we can't ignore that either. Nina with a good catch here. Arya thinks of Rob as, quote, the boy she'd left at Winterfell with snow melting in his hair. John thinks of him that way. Sansa thinks of him that way, the snow melting in his hair. Now, this is probably some literary clue that 
maybe it refers to something else out there. I don't know what to connect that to, but it's, it's noteworthy and it probably speaks to Rob's death in some way. That's pretty cool. It comes up at least three times. Lem asked the Brown brothers kind of, you know, sarcastically when they don't like the idea of R'hllor being worshipped in their sept, even though the brothers just saved them from the, banner, from the mummers. So he's like, how strong are your gods? Ours, you know, ours can heal a broken man, right? Or ours can heal this. So maybe, uh, maybe elder brother on the quiet aisle can answer that question. Healing a broken man, meaning, right? Right? Sandor. Mm-hmm. Okay. Violet Messiah 666, question. If Beric is a fire white and his blood isn't pumping, John gets resurrected with the same magic. How do him and Danny have boat sex or any kind of sex if John can't perform? I'm totally wondering about that too. I really do really wonder about that. To be I, fair, they don't need to end up having sex. Yeah, they don't. They don't ever have to go that far. They could just start to have a relationship before they realize this isn't going to work. Maybe this is part of why. <laughs> it might not be just the whole relationship. It just whole... actually cannot work. <laughs> yeah, it's not just about the, the family part. It's not just that, hey, we're, we're brother and sister. Also, <laughs> that... It could also be something that affects John being like, I can't even, you know, produce. He might not be able to go south. I mean, that's something, one thing I think about. Like Go cold. south? <laughs> Good one. But no. Um. Because, you know, fire, cold, fire burns, uh, cold preserves. And maybe that's how cold hands is still walking around. That his, He hasn't deteriorated, right? Yeah. he's in the cold. Yeah. So if John goes south, like we saw what happened when, when Alistair Thorne brought that white hand down. It just evaporated, basically. Hmm. I don't know if, you know, Beric and, and Beric is in the south, but he's slowly rotting away too, right? Like he, he seems to be getting worse. Uh, maybe being in the north, stems that a little bit. So it's a good, another good example of how we can't just exactly tie Beric to John because notably, John... I will say notably, Beric is a fire white and the white from the north was an ice white. Yeah, cold hands and is an east of John. We're, we're talking about John being a fire white. And that's part of the confusion. We yeah. have none of these things don't line up exactly. Like you say, cold hands is, is an ice white but, and John might be resurrected up there, but it'll be the magic of R'hllor, not whatever magic resurrected cold hands. So, But I mean, if we're so also different. thinking about ghosts... Yeah. About him taking time in there. I don't know how much that will affect You're things. You're right. That's yet another like twist that we can't. It makes it yeah. hard for us to predict. Yeah. The whole idea of, of John and Danny having a relationship when John when Danny is when John is dead. Now there's that moment where John or Danny dreams of a, a man with blue lips and his cold member and all that. And a lot of people think that could be Euron, but it could be John. You know, his lips would be cold if he was dead. And anyway. <laughs> quite something. You didn't want to go on to the member part. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the uh, this is the halfway point of A Storm of Swords, roughly, if we're going by uh, audiobook time. Now, audiobook and text does not line up exactly. Stefan B. and I compared notes on this on Flick, and I think I finally, and I, at the time, I didn't understand why they didn't line up, but I think I finally do. I think I figured it out, which is that when you're reading the book, there's lots of half-empty pages because the chapters end halfway through a page. And so there's half of an empty page there. And so that doesn't count in the audiobook. There's no half empty pages in an audiobook. So I think that's where they get off. So I think the audiobook halfway point is a little more accurate because the... the... All right. So uh, Stefan B. also points out that how it's funny that Lem is the one who's like jawing with the Priest of the Seven about how R'hllor has real powers. Yet he's also the one who doesn't seem to accept that Beric is undead. So <laughs> maybe take your own advice there, uh, Lem, and, and think this through. Uh, also, the, the line, make my horse a knight. He never shits in the hall about Sandor, which is funny because whose horse did shat in the hall? 
Tywins, the man he just stopped working for. I love how Arya retorts to Sandor in kind. Like when Sandor's like, what are you, the first eight-year-old girl knight? And she's like, no, I'm 12. And she's actually 10. So he took two years off. Well, she's going to add two on. <laughs> in that moment, Archmaester Rennie points out Sandor is joking that she's a girl knight. And given all the like Sandor vibes that Brienne has, and Brienne has Sandor vibes, they have a lot in common. Maybe this is a little nod to Brienne's future as being the first female knight. Stephanie, the peerless points out that Arya is, is tough and, and, and all alone, but she does, she does still seek security. She still does want to be with her family, even though she's worried they will reject her. And that's an interesting part of who she is and a reminder that she's no sociopath. No, no. Violent, yes. Sociopath, no. Tree Girl points out the moment when Sandor just sits there and commits faces to memory, like stares them all down. It's like, kind of like Arya, how she just is, is good at memorization and, and obviously looking at different faces is really important part of Arya, just faces in general. That's a big thing with Arya. So it's interesting how much in common this chapter reveals they have. And of course, future chapters are going to reveal a lot that they have in common as well. Interestingly, Arya may have more in common with Sandor than she has with a lot of the rest of her family. I mean being upset with some of their siblings and being wondering if she still belonged to them, not having a place to belong. Like Sandor certainly is, we've talked about that a lot, how he's kind of has no goal or he's just aimless, right? So what will John's purpose be? Great question raised on our forums. Stoneheart is stuck on the last thing she was doing when she died, meaning attacking Frey. She killed a Frey with her last action and that's how she is living out her life as an undead person. Beric is also stuck on his last purpose, which was completing that task set to him by Robert and Ned and helping the, the common folk of the area. It's almost like dying sort of locked that purpose in. Like we've talked about them being sort of like the concept of a revenant. Revenants are more focused specifically on revenge. This is a twist on that. It's not just revenge, although Lady Stoneheart's singular goal is revenge. It's not that they are only focused on revenge. It's that they're focused on the last thing they were doing. And it just so happened that's what Stoneheart's last thing was. So what is John? Is that going to happen with John? Is he going to be singularly focused on fighting the dead? Yeah, I imagine it would be fighting the others. Yeah. But, but that's not what he was doing when he was killed. He was focused on going south. His last action was yeah, calling, okay. getting people fired up about going to fight Ramsey. Yeah. So, hmm. Maybe that's going to be it. I don't have a lot of confidence in that notion, uh, but I think it's a great question. And that it, I mean, what I, what I mean is I don't have a lot of confidence in the notion that John will, will be focused on Ramsey. But I do think it's a great question to note that all this is happening and that if, if John does fall into that same thing of being stuck into a pattern or stuck onto a one particular purpose, well, that's, that's really interesting. With reference to the John's body decomposing and the notion that maybe going south would be bad for him, uh, in the meantime, too, Ashea brought up the point that, well, his body may just sit there for a while while he exists inside Ghost in his having a second life. What will be done with John's body? Well, best guess, it'll be thrown into the ice cells and thus will be preserved. Certainly just up there at the north in the cold might be enough to keep it pretty well preserved. But if it rots a little bit, we might see John and Kat having yet another thing a bit in common that they never would have predicted. We are ready to move on. It's time for Brand 3. The gang shelters at Queen's Crown, a.k.a. the one where Brand breaks the rules. Yet another chapter that might seem like not too big a deal, but actually there's a lot hidden under the surface. Like, say, the causeway. 
But figuratively too, like so many things in Bran's chapters, they look different when you reread them while thinking of him as King Bran. And when you know more about how skin changing works and how taking over humans like Hodor, that's a no-no. That's against the rule. That's the breaking the rules that I mentioned in the title here. This, cha- this chapter has another killer opening line that symbolizes a secondary version of oneself projected elsewhere. Quote, The tower stood upon an island, its twin reflected on the still blue waters. Queen's crown, named because Queen Alisande once visited there. Well, now they'll be able to add to that. A future king has now stayed there as well. That is a point in this chapter that I never even remotely considered on prior rereads that just jumps out at me now, like, oh man. So in that opening line, what we might be seeing with the tower's reflection in the water is a nod to the pair of monarchs who have been to this place. The solid one set in stone. No one's going to forget Alisan anytime soon. And the one to come reflected in the waters, the one cast in the future. Alisan was already crowned when she visited. She was so popular and for good reason, This place is so remote, right? That is part of why they honored her and they were so determined to make it memorable and to, you know, make it part of their history here. Because as this chapter and the next reveals, there is just nothing here. So a queen coming there to visit is a huge deal. And if we're wondering what kind of King Bran will make, well, he's following Queen Alisande's footsteps. And if he follows her lead as a ruler, i.e. reflects her style, hmm? The ending of A Song of Ice and Fire might be a little happier than we may have expected if, if he succeeds in being like her at all. Or if Sansa follows in Queen Alisande's footsteps, she rules the North, which might happen, then also the North will be in great, great shape. At least they'll have a great outlook. Something that's going to come up in the John chapter is, in fact, the future of this area, settling it, right? Eddard referred to it as a, quote, a dream of spring. Ah, But the point is, a lot of people could live here. It's fairly fertile. It's empty. There's even infrastructure there already. Like, there's there's stuff. So, a good project, perhaps, for King Bran, the ultimate dreamer of spring, huh? Now, not unlike Ygritte, the fact this area is empty is confusing to people from elsewhere, especially people who come from places that have crappy farmland. So, quote, This is good land. Jojen picked up a handful of dirt, rubbing it between his fingers. A village, an inn, a stout holdfast in the lake. All these apple trees? But where are the people, Bran? Why would they leave such a place? Yeah, I mean, Jojen lives in a swamp. Igrit lives beyond the wall. So there's a, they come from places where farming is hard and where, you know, well, you got to do a lot of hunting and gathering so this is like, whoa, they're, they're really struck by the incongruity of great land just sitting here. I mean, there's apples just sitting there growing, orchards, just there's an inn, empty inn. It's wild, right? Land is the basis for wealth in this society, and well, in a lot of societies, really, and productivity, food, it generates sustainability. It's, it's important for feeding the people. This, is, this could support a lot of people if it weren't for, well, quote. They were afraid of the wildlings, said Bran. Wildlings come over the wall or through the mountains to raid and steal and carry off women. If they catch you, they make your skull into a cup to drink blood, old Nan used to say. The Night's Watch isn't so strong as it was in Brandon's day or Queen Alisande's, so more get through. The places nearest the wall got raided so much the small folk moved south, into the mountains or onto the Umberlands east of the King's Road. The Great John's people get raided too, 
but not so much as the people who used to live in the gift. Yeah. It may not have been clear just how much rating occurs and how slow or how the slow decline of the watch has increased the rating. It's kind of a vicious cycle, right? It's also maybe not clear how just how huge this area is, right? Brand points out that they're in the gift. They still haven't seen the wall yet, though. It's 700 feet tall and they still can't see it. What they do see is, though, that old man on the horse, that same one that ends up captured by the, the raiders and given over to, to John to kill. Of course, he refuses, but we'll get to that in a minute. The nature and format of Valar Reredus allows us to do fun stuff like merge some of the shared info from the John chapter and consider it here in this chapter. Since they're companions, they, they're companion chapters, the action spills from one into the other, but they both contain backstory and world building about Queen's Crown. And we've got even more than that because we have other sources like, say, Fire and Blood. Nina points out that there's some revision to what John's story says here. John says King Jaehaerys brought his queen, six dragons, and half his court to Winterfell. But Gildane, Archmaester Gildane, the author of Fire and Blood, says that only Jaehaerys and Alysanne on their dragons went north in 58 AC. John may have misremembered or may have been conflated or, you know, Lewin could have gotten some detail wrong. Who, who knows where John heard that? Uh, maybe it's written down somewhere. Uh, for example, there's, oh, there's plenty of this in A Song of Ice and Fire, conflicting events within history, which almost all, and there's probably a few that are legitimate mistakes, but most of them are just, are intentional to show that history is not something we have a perfect, accurate take on, just like the real world. The only time we get real takes is, is through magic, <laughs> like thanks to Bran and stuff like that. Some of the knowledge uh, John has on this area is more direct. It comes straight from Lord Eddard. Here's, this is a quote that contains the little Dream of Spring quote, but it, again, this is John remembering this, not Bran. His Lord Father had once talked about raising new lords and settling them in the abandoned holdfasts as a shield against wildlings. The plan would have required the watch to yield back a large part of the gift, but his uncle Benjamin believed the Lord Commander could be won around so long as the new lordlings paid taxes to Castle Black rather than Winterfell. It's a dream for spring, though, Lord Eddard had said. By then, though, interestingly, if we're thinking ahead, meaning to but if we have our own version of a dream for spring, um, they may not even need protection against the free folk because, well, there may not be a wall, which might mean they need more protection against the free folk. But what I really mean is, is a little darker than that. Is there may not be many free folk left uh, given all the, the pain and, and winter coming their way and the fact that they've already migrated south beyond the wall to join, like most of them have, to join up with Stanish slash John or whoever knows how that's going to work out. But Point is, when this dream of spring rolls around, the outlook might be a lot different. And I do believe people migrating to the gift is going to be like a part of maybe the end game or what we're left with as, as the story fades. And who will live there? Well, we might even have a bit of an idea if we're thinking about considering free folk. Well, look no further than the marriage of Alice Karstark and Sigorn, the new Magnar of Fen, who replaces uh, Steer that we see in these chapters uh, when Steer is killed at the wall. And again, we see with that marriage, it's an interesting bit of unity because not only is it a northern house marrying uh, a Fen, a, a free folk people, but it's the marriage is blessed by R'hllor, um, by Melisandre. She does the, the ceremony. So it's another example, kind of like what we just saw in Arya's chapter of these 
different cultural traditions coming together in something that usually doesn't mix cultural traditions. You don't usually mix a bunch of cultures together in a wedding. Normally, what we're, what we're used to seeing in Westeros or Essos is people obey the traditions of that place. It's really important for Danny to have a Giscari wedding, a Miranese wedding. Not a, her wedding has like almost nothing in common with Westerosi weddings other than the few things she says, I'm not doing that. I'm not washing his feet or I'm not giving my dragon to, <laughs> to, uh, to Zaro Zoandaxis as part of that marriage custom. So, so that's a big deal to see these things changing, to see different versions of combined sort of take the best of both worlds or three worlds in this case and, and make that all work. So that is the dream of spring. These cultures uniting and living together in peace. What might help them get to that point is joining up together to fight the others, having a common enemy. Well, there's nothing like a common enemy to bring people together to maybe help you forget some of your differences. Joe brings up a really sad point about Jojen Reed. Here's a, a brief quote. Jojen Reed turned his head slowly, listening to music only he could hear. Joe says this line really stuck out to him on this read because it's, um, it's a bit of an immersion POV break, but also it's a great way of putting across or getting across what Jojen has to deal with in his own mind. It's so, it's, it's got to be burdensome having those dreams all the time, having visions that you can't fully interpret and, and being unable to explain that confusion to be like, look, I had this image of this and that, and, but you don't want to tell everybody because if, you if you're not sure, you're just going to scare them. So you kind of bear that burden yourself. Jojen, it's no wonder Jojen acts so much older than he is because like, like bastards in this society, it's, it's said bastards have to grow up quicker because, well, they have a harder time of it. It's a similar concept. Jojen is no bastard, but he's had to become an adult in, earlier than his time because of the life he's leading and the, thing, the qualities that, that exist within him. Jo Joe, of course, great time again to realize that Joe is, is a, one of the most knowledgeable about castles in Westeros. He wrote a book on it, The Great Castles of Westeros. I highly recommend checking that out. And he makes a note about that here. You, you would think, well, how does this causeway, does this causeway really prevent an assault on this tower? Well, yeah, the point is it doesn't have to stop them for forever. The causeway, you will eventually figure out the way through the water, given enough time. But that's the point. These are, this isn't a defense against some army. It's meant as a defense against raiders. So people who aren't going to be patient, who aren't going to sit there and, and wait you out and starve you out because they don't have the time for that. They don't have a lot of food either. And their time is limited. They're trying to smash and grab. They're trying to get what they came for and get back to the other side of the wall before the night's watch or the umbers come. So if you can hide in that tower, all you got to do is wait until the Umbers or the Night's Watch show up. You don't have to necessarily defeat the, the Free Folk Raiders on your own. So that's kind of neat just to think about how this would have played out or the way this tower would have been meant to be used. Nina gives some additional thoughts on the, the cycle of decline for the gift. The gift gives to the, was given to the Watch to support itself, but as the Watch loses its strength over time, it's unable to enforce those wildlings to protect itself against those wildling raids. And thus, the more wildlings who come over because they're more encouraged to, because there's no one defending the area, the fewer people are going to want to live and farm the gift because they're at risk of being killed by these raiders. And that undermines the purpose of the gift in the first place. It's no longer functional as a place to support the watch. And if people out in the world have been told, oh, hey, the watch can support itself now, and they stop sending stuff there, they stop sending help because they know that the watch no longer needs their help. Well, 
you can see how that would really go belly up. The watch isn't able to help itself anymore because it doesn't have this manpower, but people might still be under that impression. They are also under the impression that the wall doesn't need as much help as it used to because people have long forgotten its original purpose. Again, it's the wall doesn't exist to keep savages and skins from stealing women, which is, I forget who said that line. I guess it was Gior Mormont. But you can see that it's a much more complicated situation with that than that. And this area really looms large, as I said, for the end game of the entire series in terms of how the Westeros will look when we finally leave this, the story. Bran's skin changing into Hodor is like the climax of a three-part setup. Bran first warns Hodor to duck as they're entering the holdfast. Hodor doesn't listen. Then Bran talks, tells Hodor to hush. And Hodor somewhat listens. He gives the longsword to Mira, but isn't really calm. Then Bran tells Hodor to stop and enters his mind, which forcibly quiets him. So it's like Bran does try different regular methods before he's kind of, well, I've got no choice now. It's interesting too, of course, as we are well aware, the chapter, this chapter and John 5 are two halves of the same story, but not just in plot, but in this thematic message, you've got both chapters talk about the wildlings, the free folk raids, and the importance of the gift and why it's underpopulated. Grit approaches it from one direction, talks about, yes, some of the same questions that, you know, Jojen asks, and the, the explanations are fairly similar. I talked a bit about why the, the, the tower is effective. And uh, it's interesting, too, from a symbolic point, though. Just as the Thens can't enter the tower because they can't pass through the water or figure out the causeway, all while Bran's powers are taking large leaps forward, so does Bran later sit on a weirwood throne of his own in a cave that the Whites cannot enter while his powers grow. Here he's in a tower. Later, he'll be below the earth. Hodor is important in both cases, too. Here, he's wandering around exploring a bit, meaning Hodor. He's looking at the walls, just hanging out, kind of doing his thing. Before the storm comes and Bran takes over his mind to quiet his yelling, that is. While later, much later in the cave, Bran takes Hodor's body to wander around because he can. The power he unlocks in this scene, he's, by the time a Dance with Dragons comes, he's just using it casually. And it's, it's not great, ethically speaking. Here, he, it scares him that he's even able to do it, but he gets used to it. Like he gets used to a lot of things that are kind of dark, and that in itself is dark but also to be expected on some degree. I mean, heck, he's on a dark path. He's got, a, he's got important world-saving things to do. So, you know, it's not going to be all rosy. And we get the same life-or-death pragmatism we discussed not long back that perhaps we should at least understand or at least tolerate if, if your life is on the line, maybe doing things that aren't so great ethically can be tolerated. Hodor literally outweighs all three of them put together, I would think. They couldn't physically shut him up. And he was yelling, about to alert men who would murder them. So what choice did they have? Bran had to do what he did. He didn't even really do it consciously. He was kind of desperate. It was reflexive, rooted in fear. Nevertheless, it establishes a new boundary for him. And it's a boundary he's going to explore fully. It's a new power he didn't know he had. Even Varamir didn't think this was terribly likely to be able to pull off. Varamir desperately tried to take over Thistle's body. And he's really strong, but he wasn't able to do it. He was only able to partially get in there and drive her mad. His mentor, Hagen, called skin changing into other humans an abomination. So what Bran is doing here is arguably that. He's doing something that's an abomination, at least according to Hagon. But Hagon was deep into skin changer culture. He would go to the skin changer meetups. So this was an attitude that he probably got 
from other skin changers. So it's like they have, there's a small skin changer culture, subculture that exists. And according to them, apparently, what Brand did is against the rules. Now, magical powers unlocked in isolated towers. That's a fairly recognizable fantasy mythical trope. George does bend it somewhat as he tends to. He's not obviously just straight using the trope. Uh, but he consider the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is a biblical story shattered by lightning. Queen's crown is not struck by lightning, but this scene has very notable lightning, especially in the John portion when lightning illuminates Summer's bloody muzzle and all that. It's really quite striking. <laughs> lightning, quite striking. The Tower, <laughs> the Tower of Babel was built, j- just biblically speaking, just after the Great Flood. And this one is surrounded by water, so eh, something going on there. The Tower of Babel was built so tall that God was offended by it. And though the people of the Tower of Babel had unified, they had come together and built one language that they all spoke. God scattered them out into the world and confounded their speech. Here in Westeros, there's some similarities. Mankind has lost the elder speech, the ability to have unity with animals that used to exist, apparently. Used used to be, apparently, the ravens spoke common or spoke the elder speech that humans could speak along with them. So many other lost magical arts and things have have fallen off. Things that used to be known by mankind back in the days of the first men when the children and humankind were closer together. But that was so long ago and so much of that is gone. That reminds me of, of this Tower of Babel concept. Bran is learning again to use these skills that were lost. As Summer, Bran goes for the kill. These are Bran's first kills of humans while fully inside Summer and in control, right? He's been in Summer maybe when death was happening before, but he was kind of along for the ride. Killing while activating powers. Yeah, there's some symbolism there. Bran killing off people while his powers are growing. There's some, yeah, some sacrifice, blood magic themes. I'm not saying it's blood magic, but the symbolism is there. And uh, Bran calms Hodor and then goes into summer though. So it's kind of backwards. It's like if Bran had killed some Fens while in summer and then merged into Hodor, that would sell this point even stronger, but it actually happens the other way around. So don't, don't take that too strongly. But since the action happens in John's chapter, meaning the fight with the Fens, we don't actually see Bran's firsthand take on the fighting and, and how Bran reacts to it and just how savage he is or how bloody he is. Interesting way for George to avoid that. Maybe he doesn't want Bran to seem so dark just yet because having Bran just violently tear apart some men Maybe that's, he wasn't ready to show us that from Bran yet. So he, that might be part of why we have this unusual narrative of, of John and Bran's chapters coming together. Uh, well, here's the quote from when Bran thinks about it later. Again, this is, this is a future, this is his next chapter, Bran's next chapter. The dire wolf had killed three of them, maybe more, but there had been too many. When they formed a tight ring around the tall, earless man, he had tried to slip away through the rain but one of their arrows had come flashing after him and the sudden stab of pain had driven Bran out of the wolf's skin and back into his own. So the, yeah, the Fens could have been able to navigate the causeway in the light of day as Jojen feared they would, but the Magnar was like, nah. They started to struggle with the first twisting turn of the causeway. One guy falls in the water, they pull him back out and the, and the Magnar's like, let's go, forget it. It makes sense. It's bad enough that John has gotten away. They know John got away and that's, that's driving their action here. They know he's going to warn Castle Black of their approach. And so that's already done. They already know their cover is blown. 
Might as well not give them time to prepare, though. Like, at least they, they may know we're coming, but if we come shortly after John, they'll have been able to do very little about it. So that does make sense. I do feel slightly robbed here, though. <laughs> a few of the brand chapters have great stories. We, we call them, we title them Storytime, you know, Storytime Tournament of Hall, And pretty soon we're going to have Storytime the Night Fort. But here we just get a tease, quote. It was Brand's turn to tell a story, so he told them about another Brandon Stark, Stark the one called Brandon the Shipwright, who had sailed off beyond the Sunset Sea. And that's it? Oh, come on. <laughs> what happened? What, you, what, what, what happened with Brandon the Shipwright? What was... What's the deal here? So if George R. R. Martin were to have Arya sail off in the West at the end, which I still think is very possible, this could have been a chance for him to lay some groundwork for that, to maybe drop a few hints about that. But this is already the largest book in the series. But to this point, I, I think A Dance with Dragons slightly surpasses it in length. So <laughs> it's already too big, maybe. Yeah, maybe that's what he was thinking. Still, that would have been really cool. If you're curious for what uh, Queen's Crown looks like, there's some really great art on our Facebook group that's been shared there, some fan art, but also um, Facebook commenter Manuel Paredes posted a great picture of the Santillana Reservoir Tower. You either go to the Facebook group and, t- and check it out or just Google search Santillana t- Reservoir Tower. And just imagine the causeway you see in that photo. Imagine that being below the surface of the water and you've got a really good parallel. It's even possible George has seen that. A couple of people uh, noted that they're calling Bran your grace in this chapter. That might be a clue for King Bran, but probably not. It Probably not, because there's other examples of princes being called your grace. It's not just for kings and queens. But I imagine a few of you may have caught that and been like, whoa, oh, there's a hint. And I'm not saying it's not one, but there is definitely examples of princes being called your grace. Now, some people thought it was evidence that Jojen may have already dreamt of the Red Wedding and just didn't want to tell Bran about it because, well, Bran's dealing with enough. That's entirely possible, and that would be why the theory is that Joe already knows Bran is the king because Rob is dead. It's possible, for sure. I don't think that, that Jojen would, would do it that way. Um, I, do, I do think it's possible he would keep that to himself if he dreamt of it, but I don't know that he would just start calling Bran your grace because he knows his brother is dead. However, Bran himself does dream of the Red Wedding in between this chapter and his next. So he is going to be himself be aware of it, although he's going to be slightly be in denial about it. Mm -hmm. Great take by Sir Newt from our Discord server. He points out that not only is Bran, the future king, staying there, but Jon showed up, (laughs) who is also apparently a future king or almost king. And so the joke is that there was a no occupancy sign. This, this spot reserved for kings and queens is already taken, John. You were beaten there. <laughs> it's so funny, this remote place <laughs> that no one ever goes to. And John shows up and is like, no, sorry, there's already a king staying here. Like, what? <laughs> there's nobody here for miles and there's already a king staying in this abandoned tower? Are you kidding me? Onward. John 5, the gang fights Summer, aka the one where John dumps a grit. A chapter heavy on action and conflict and sadness with a nice dose of obscure world building. The ground was littered with pine needles and blown leaves, a carpet of green and brown still damp from the recent rains. Right away, we're reminded how different life on the other side of the wall is, with the grit extremely impressed by a mere tower house. It's not a mere, it's a pretty darn cool tower house, actually, with the moat and the causeway and everything. But still, John is like, oh, this is nothing. Winterfell? Think about Winterfell. It's got multiple towers like this, and that's just part of the castle. And then the high tower, he mentions that, and she doesn't even seem to believe him. 
And well, if a tower house looks mighty to you, then the high tower does sound a bit fanciful, doesn't it? But frankly, the wall? I mean, the wall is pretty damn impressive, and she has seen that. So deep down, I think she knows it's possible. She's a little skeptical, but all she has to do is turn around and be like, hmm, well, there is that 700-foot wall of ice, so... Besides the tower houses and small empty villages, there's very little here. Largely abandoned area, of course. As we said, very vital to the Night's Watch. The slow and steady decline of the watch is seen here. It's good that John is seeing that to be made more aware of what Lord Commander needs to do uh, of you know having the whole picture that's laid out before him. The land that used to sustain them would need a lot of work, capable of being productive again. John was surely going to be aware of that. He's going to see it firsthand. But of course, he knows too that the only way to ever fix that problem is to have more manpower. And that is certainly, it's not exactly the right time to be bringing manpower up to the wall area. Now, they've not only lost most of their manpower over the years, they've lost the means to have the kind of manpower they had before. That capacity is still trending down. As we talked about, the people are sending less help to the watch because the perception is that they can farm their own food. Well, Later on, when John is Lord Commander, John takes out bank loans from the Iron Banks and he's creating things like glass gardens. He's basically trying to fix these problems without manpower because he knows the manpower would be the biggest help, but that's not happening. And of course, he's killed not long after laying out all these forward-thinking plans. But since he's probably going to come back, maybe these forward-thinking plans will also be, uh, we'll also resurface. Maybe we'll see them either from John or from Bran. Maybe they'll even discuss it together. How cool would that be? John and Bran like discussing how to handle the situation in the future. Functionally, as, as we look ahead for John and Bran and other things, this is the end for Igrit and John. Did you think the first time through that they'd be reunited ever? Obviously, they are reunited as she's dying, but well, I wonder what you thought the first time if they'd ever come back together and have any kind of love. Probably not. Maybe a few of you held out hope. Well, there's no false hopes this time, at least. Instead, we just have other things to worry about or think about. There's so many other plot lines to consider that we missed the first time we read the series. And perhaps John's other doomed relationships are foreshadowed by a great. It isn't just about her. It's about what this relationship tells us about how it's going to go with him and, and Danny, perhaps. And maybe one that isn't doomed. Maybe Val will work out. But again, all these things we talked about, how John just can't probably function as a man. Why would Val want to be with that? <laughs> you know? Or perhaps Firewhites don't get to settle down and have happy endings when all is said and done. Or whatever John is. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know about John ending up in a relationship when it's all done, given, given the fact that he's going to be undead. Just something about that just doesn't necessarily work. And it's a bit closer, or I mean, a bit cruel for John and Agrit to grow a bit closer just before they split for good. Agrit essentially tells John what he can expect if she's mistreated by him. <laughs> they argue about the wife-stealing custom, and he points out a husband can be cruel or brutal. And well, I notice he didn't pose a hip, uh, the hypothetical like, what if he's lying to you about his intentions all along? What if he's a traitor waiting to happen? <laughs> well, we do find out what happens. She you know, shoots him with an arrow, or maybe he does anyway. Maybe she was aiming for the horse, as he thinks. And he doesn't notice the arrow in his leg until after he's been on the move for a bit. And he's unclear how he got into the, on the horse with the sword in hand, and he doesn't have a saddle. Well, it all happens so fast, but this is puzzling to him. It's a tough move to manage, but we do see him do it. We actually see him jump onto the back of the horse, even though he doesn't remember it. Igrit says that 
she would kill a brutal man at night. Yeah, and shooting arrows at them isn't a whole lot different, you know? So yeah, John wonders if she meant to kill his horse or, or him. And well, what would she have done if, if he had not escaped? Just, just kill him? Well, maybe worse than what the Thens would have done to him. He thinks that the Thens would have been you know, brutal to him and Grit might have been even worse. I don't know. Grit is really good with the bow. Maybe, maybe not as good as the show portrays her to be. We don't actually see her using skills like she has on HBO. So we don't know whether that's true or not. I would tend to think that she's not quite that good because she's ridiculously good on TV. But hey, maybe she is. Anyway, that is why we asked the question. Her skill is why we can wonder whether or not she was aiming for John or not or trying to shoot him in the horse. And, and of course, Book Egret is also having the, the scene at night. On the show, this scene plays out during the daytime. So it's very different. It's almost as if when John is in that moment, when he's fighting and desperate and jumps on the back of the horse in a way that even he can't understand, it's like a desperate adrenaline-filled trance. And it's maybe similar to the time he blacks out in fury while training with Iron Emmett during A Dance with Dragons. In that case, there's an even bigger memory gap. He's, he's fighting Emmett and there's a comment. And next thing he knows, Emmett's on the ground and he's wailing on him. And he's like, oh God, I'm sorry. What am I doing? Whether it's meant to be thematically related by George or not, we just got through talking about how memory gaps come when you're killed and then raised again. So that could be foreshadowing that for John. And especially, it, see, the thematic connection seems even more powerful when, it, when John gets, it's, it's, it's what, what's happening inside John in these moments is he's becoming so enraged. It's, it's a fire in him. And well, if he's going to be a fire white, well, that has some very strong resonance. And one thing that Barrick also mentions is that he can't even remember the name of his betrothed anymore. Is John going to find himself losing his memory of Ygrit later? That's going to sting if so. Oof. Here's a quote. The throb of pain in his thigh muscle made him wince as he put his heels into the old man's horse. I'm going home, he told himself. But if that was true, why did he feel so hollow? He rode till dawn while the stars stared down like eyes. Feel so hollow. I don't suppose that's a reference to the hollow hill. But, you know, maybe. But the fact that if he's, if he dies and, you know, doesn't have the same purpose, it could be kind of like a feeling of being hollow, like not having a soul anymore. The eyes in the sky could also be symbolic of how he sees himself. He is very full of guilt and shame. So it's kind of like the stars are judging him and he feels like he deserves to be judged. I mean, Corin gave him this mission. Nevertheless, he's now betrayed the watch and the only person he's ever loved romantically despite it being his quote-unquote mission, that doesn't mean he's not going to have feelings about it. It doesn't mean he, he's, he's very human. We just talked about how he's going to be undead later, but at this point, he's still human. John and Ygritte's relationship was always doomed, of course, because of who John really is, which is not just a brother of the Night's Watch, but because of his heritage, which is also going to undermine his relationship with Danny later. Both of these things are, not just his heritage, but his undead status and his status as a brother or former brother of the Night's Watch. Assuming he has a relationship with Danny at all, that is. We're, we're assuming that it's going to be sexual. Maybe it's just going to be, maybe they say nah before it gets to that point. Yeah, because of course, being a dead person can undermine your, your shot with someone like Danny. <laughs> Still, I'm not one to judge, but dating a dead John is better than dating a live Dario. Am I right? Eh, am I right? 
Yes, I'm right. <laughs> but what was I saying about not judging? It's at the heart of this chapter. John's devotion to what's right reaches a breaking point. Eddard Stark always taught him, he who passes the sentence should swing the sword. John did not pass this sentence, though that man is doomed no matter what. So it's a little different, but similar enough. And John specifically thinks of the opening brand chapter and Garrett, the, the, the brother's execution. Nina says the man didn't have last words, but he had looked at John in, quote, accusation and appeal. Accusation at this stark looking man. Remember, John has the stark look. And if the free folk can recognize the stark look, this old man, very good chance, does as well. And so that would seem very unjust. A stark looking guy getting ready to put this judgment on him for nothing. That's the appeal in his eyes. Appeal to the Starks as the ultimate arbiters of Northern justice, as it has been so for 10,000-ish, 8,000-ish years. John held the Valyrian steel as his father once had, even though it's not the same Valyrian steel, but still, that's thematically important, but he just couldn't do it, and he wouldn't do it. He's not going to swing the sword any more than he can pass sentence. It's just too deeply ingrained in who he is. So it's another one of those what-would-Ned-do moments, and John seemingly passes with flying colors. He's so much like his father in this moment. Ned had faced the prospect of killing defenseless and innocent people too. And in each circumstance, he chose for them to live. He passed off John as his own son rather than allowing an assassination attempt on, you know, against him or, or allowing Robert to kill him. He didn't allow Daenerys to be assassinated. He, even though it might've meant his own death, he even told Cersei. He even warned her. To, to run before Robert came and killed her children. So this is John faced with a similar choice, except, except George makes it a lot more difficult because it's an old man. It's not a child. What's the difference between killing Corrin and killing this old man? Well, perhaps we'll never know. John had to kill Corrin, not because he was ordered to, not because he knew the wildlings would kill him if he didn't, but because Corrin forced the issue Corrin swung his sword at John and John blocked it and it was on. I mean, the, it was battles happening. The decision was made. John didn't actually choose. Corrin chose and John had to go along with it. And Ghost was chewing on Corrin's calf by that point. I mean, the, the boulder's rolling down the hill on that point. There's no stopping it. The old man, you could argue, was just as doomed as Corrin was, but Corrin chose to die. Corrin had his own agency there. This old man did not. The certainty of their respective deaths does not change their agency in the situation. Corrin was in the Night's Watch, dying by his own judgment was duty. His life and honor, by his own words, were coined for the realm. This old man, despite ruthless arguments about how little life he may have left because he's old, an argument John considers silently, but isn't swayed by, represents exactly what that coin for the realm was meant to be spent on. This solitary old man is part of the realm. You can't... Sp he, John can spend coin for the realm in terms of Night's Watch lives because they signed up for that. This old man did not. This is going too far. Even if the end result is inevitable, the principle must live on, and John is not going to sacrifice the principle even if this old man is doomed. Egrit says, it's no different than when he killed Orel. But Orel, also a soldier like Corrin, he didn't take sworn vows, but he was clearly engaged in military action. He clearly made himself a combatant. Egrit says it's the same because it's all about survival in the end, which... You know, from her point of view, given where she came up, I'm not going to tell her she's wrong, but John is not from a culture that lives on the edge of death, where survival is a frequent consideration. John grew up in a castle. <laughs> he was taught to value life differently, and he sticks to that. And that's part of why he's 
can't fully become part of the free folk. He, that cultural similarity between the free folk and the North that we've been seeing a lot of, this is where it doesn't work anymore. This is an impasse. There's definitely a different sense between free folk and, and Northerners, at least a lot of them, in terms of how they value life. George, again, and this is such an amazing job by George. If this was a young woman with a baby, John's refusal would just be a lot easier to process. There would be a lot less con- conflict. Be like, oh yeah, of course, John's not going to kill a baby and a, and a young girl. What if it was an old? What if what if it was an eleven year old boy like like an Ollie instead of an old man? That's just as dangerous in terms of this kid could run off and war in Castle Black. That's no different in terms of a messenger. He's no less dangerous or more dangerous. But again, the reader would find this much much less conflicting for John, and it would make Egret look worse too <laughs> if she's going to kill an eleven year old boy. But John is just not going to kill an eleven year old under any circumstance, and so he's not going to kill this old man either. Because ultimately, the difference between an 11-year-old boy and an old man is not, the difference is their age. That is not enough reason to decide one deserves death and the other doesn't. I think it's really well done by George that he gives extra conflict and extra tension by making this an old man. Even an old woman would be harder to kill. So John surely can't put all this into words. John is young and and naive and not great at talking, frankly. (laughs) So he's, he's also kind of quiet and brooding. So we have to explain all this. He's not very eloquent. He's not even well-spoken, really. In fact, later on, his inability to communicate clearly with his subordinates is going to be a big part of why he's assassinated. So he doesn't calculate what's right. John is not someone that can il- illuminate in words what's moral and what isn't. He's not great at that. He just reflexively feels it. He was taught it. Eddard Stark taught him this. It's deeply ingrained. So he knows how to behave, even if he can't explain it. A few details from the fight itself, in addition to the whole arrow bit. When John goes for the horse, he cuts the man in the back of the calf. This man wasn't even facing him. So John almost certainly could have just run him through, could have easily killed him, but didn't. Another example of John's goodness, uh, reflexive goodness. He just can't stab a guy in the back. Even though he just stabbed his girlfriend in the back. hey <laughs> Summer is pretty unreal here, isn't he? No wonder Grey Wind was so feared by the Lannister soldiers and other soldiers who faced him in the Riverlands. John thinks of him here briefly, right? It's like, wait, that can't be Grey Wind, but he thinks of him. And this gives us some idea what he's like in combat. Like, we never see Grey Wind in combat, but we hear about Oxcross, the whole wolf in the night song and, and Grey Wind helping launch a surprise attack at night. Wolf in the night, right? I mean, that's exactly what's happening here. This is wolf in the freaking night. Uh, and that, maybe wolf in the storm is a little better because, you know, that's, we want a different title here. But <laughs> So before Summer's attack, John also thinks about Ghost. John wondered where Ghost was now. Had he gone to Castle Black or was he running with some wolf pack in the woods? He had no sense of the dire wolf, not even in his dreams. It made him feel as if part of himself had been cut off. Now, we've already been through the the wall and the cutting off of skin changing, so we're not going to go over that again, but this is worth pointing to as additional evidence for that. Speaking of surprise attacks, clearly the Fens, as we said, they know John is giving warning, but they go ahead with their attack anyway. But maybe not all of them. I wonder if all the free folk go along because certainly the Fens do because they they follow their leader. They don't have the, their culture doesn't allow them to disobey, steer. But not everyone in this company is Fen. Greg the Goat, Arok, those guys are, are here. We're, they're never seen again. 
I, I wonder, maybe they decided, nah, we lost the element of surprise and a dire wolf just attacked us. They're just like, nope, I'm going back. And Steer wouldn't be able to stop them. However, more likely they just went along with Steer and were killed in the attack, considering a grit as well did. But if Greg the goat turns up later, we won't be confused. We'll be like, oh, well, he clearly peaced out and was like, I am not getting involved in this. It's going too bad. Uh, Joe pulls in uh, a couple of great lines here. If I could show her Winterfell, give her a flower from the glass gardens, feast her in the great hall, and show her the stone kings and their thrones. We could bathe in the hot pools and love beneath the heart tree while the old gods watched over us. First of all, I, that last part, like, what? Why do you want to... Why do you want the old gods watching you while you have sex? I don't know about that. It's like, I don't think banging below the heart tree is very appealing. That face is creepy, man. I mean, talk about no one being watched. Like, yeah, that's a different kind of voyeurism. Did Christians ever say like, you know, making love under the watchful eyes of, of Jesus Christ? I, I, yeah, see, that's exactly what I'm getting at. That's just that's creepy. <laughs> So the, what Joe says here is, is very poignant. The idea of Winterfell sends John full into waking dream state where he imagines a perfect world where he could bring a grit back and use the home he felt so imprisoned in as the ultimate impression tool. He can give her flowers, whatever. I don't know if she would care about that, but <laughs> it would be fun to, to see. He can, create their, he can recreate their time in the cave with the hot pools, loving beneath the heart tree. Hey, vibes of Jacarius Valerian and Sarah Snow, maybe. Yeah, Dance of the Dragons vibes. Though perhaps going down in the crypts, as he suggests, that might kill the mood. That's another thing. It's like, how is that sexy? But Joe points out another little tidbit that, I, that went over my head is John is not yet aware of what happened to Winterfell. Winterfell is, he's thinking of how awesome it is, but right now it's in ruins. So that's a little sad, isn't it? Grig, speaking of Grig the goat, he, quote, yearns to visit the green men on the Isle of Faces. This is another bit of cross-cultural uh, interest for us. How does Greg even know about the Isle of Faces? Probably, I mean, it's not strange, but it's interesting to think of. I mean, it's so far south, but it's something super old and mystical that dates back to the pact. The Wildlings should have knowledge of it. It should be part of free folk culture, even if no one's seen it. It's a legendary thing from a time before the wall, even. So Wilding cultural memory going back that far definitely makes sense, but it's notable too. It's also perhaps a sneaky nod to Bran being nearby because, you know, Bran, if Bran is king later, which I certainly am very pro on that side of things, uh, the idea that he could interact with the Isle of Faces, be sort of like the king of the Trident or king of the king on the Isle of Faces, something like that, the Greenseer king. Yeah, could be working with some foreshadowing here that, we, that hasn't been fully realized. Stefan B pulls in another interesting quote here. Winterfell would never be to his, would be his to show. It belonged to his brother, the king in the north. He was a snow, not a Stark. This foreshadows uh, John refusing Stannis's offer because he didn't think this would ever be. He's in this point moment. He's imagining that it would never. There's no way it would ever come to him. But it does come to him through Stannis's offer. But he refuses it, and that's interesting that he's thinking of that with Bran so, again, so nearby, the guy who probably will become king. Okay, that, I think, not the John chapter, but the Bran chapter, and of course, the John is a companion to it, probably the one that surprised me the most in terms of the reread, things that I was on the lookout for. Here we go with the next one. Daenerys Four. 
The gang meets Dario, aka the one where Young Kai goes down. That title explains two of the bigger parts of this chapter, but it also includes a major conversation with Barristan, ahem, Arston Whitebeard, about Rhaegar. Quote, Her Dothraki scouts had told her how it was, but Danny wanted to see for herself. I think that's a great little point there. Danny is a little more hands-on, even though she's just a young girl, as she likes to say, as a way to make men take her less seriously so that she can surprise them, which happens in this chapter very much. Uh, she is a lot more direct. She is a lot more clever and she's very brave. Something that comes up here is how she thinks about how she would be in this battle that's happening off page if Drogon were large enough to be ridden. And the thought of it doesn't intimidate her in the least. She's like, well, if Drogon was bigger, I'd be there with them. Yep. She, there's no fear attached to that. No, it's just it's a matter of what would be happening. So that's a sign of, of how brave she is as well. That she's just, the idea of being in the battle and fighting doesn't really intimidate her. And by the end of this chapter, she's defeated the city, freed its slaves, even not counting that the slaves she, she frees, some of whom probably join her armies or at least her retinue or at least become hangers on or at least join her up in one way or another. She still even not including them, gains soldiers in the process via the Storm Crows and, some, and the Second Sons. Second Sons reform under Brown Ben Plum uh, after they're scattered in this one and Miro runs off. So it's a huge rousing victory for Danny again so soon after she totally kicks butt down in Astapor. So we get new characters in their backstory plus old characters in theirs. This chapter has plenty of both. Grey Worm, one of the new ones, a character whose TV role was made much larger while the rest of Danny's supporting cast was largely written out. There will definitely not be a Grey Worm Missandei relationship in the books. Again, she's 10, but Grey Worm, there's a lot of potential for him to be interesting and different. He is a good example of, of the Astapori slavers being wrong about culling humanity out of people, even with all their intense, long running, incredible brutality. They're told, Danny's told that. You can't have unsullied lead. They can only follow. You will have to appoint officers over them. But that is contradicted by the reality of it, which comes as part of Grey Worm's intro. When she had commanded the unsullied to choose officers from amongst themselves, Grey Worm had been their overwhelming choice for the highest rank. Danny had put Ser Jorah over him to train him for command, and the exile knight said that so far, the young eunuch was hard but fair, quick to learn, tireless, and utterly unrelenting in his attention to detail. So that's pretty interesting. I mean, Danny, right away, she just, she just rejects that advice. She's like, well, they said I have to put officers over them. Well, we'll see about that. She asked them to choose officers. And if they weren't, if they weren't decent candidates, they wouldn't have overwhelmingly chosen Grey Worm. Clearly, he showed the skills. Clearly, he showed leadership ability. And he was elected because of that. So it's not the only thing the slavers were proven wrong about. I mean, as we talked about, they're so, so detached from regular human nature. It's no surprise that they don't quite fully understand what people are capable of when they're pressed, especially because the being pressed, having difficult lives, having to go through adversity is something the slavers never, ever deal with, except when, you know, Danny comes for them, I guess. So the, there is still humanity in the Unsullied. They are not automatons. They are not you know, despite the relentlessly cruel attempts to make them that, they are not just emotionless, obedient killers. Well, they're two out of those three. They are obedient killers. They're just not emotionless. Quote, 
Danny halted a moment to speak with him. Young Kai has girded up her loins for battle. This is good, your grace. These ones thirst for blood. With those simple five words, again, (laughs) if they were emotionless obedient killers, they wouldn't be thirsting for blood and it wouldn't be, and this is revenge too. They want to kill. This is desire for revenge, which may not be honorable or good, but it's very much human, very much proves that they do have humanity in them. I mean, automatons don't give a crap about getting revenge. You know, emotionless people, well, revenge is an emotional thing. So yeah. How ironic that the ones who made them into such incredible soldiers will be the ones to die at their hands because they didn't credit how much humanity they still have. You cannot get rid of it. This is a bit of a parallel to Kyburn and his automaton, Sir Robert Strong, who also will perhaps turn on his master. Cersei's going to need more than one of those, I think. <laughs> He's eight feet tall, but Danny has 8,000. <laughs> eight feet, 8,000. She actually calls it 10,000 in this chapter because I think she's counting the ones who were not fully trained. Maybe she's rounding up a bit. An exact count isn't important. It's a lot. They're formidable. Even more so because Danny is leading them and she's clever. So that makes them even more formidable. She capitalizes on a mistake. Her opponents continue to repeat, as we've already said, underestimating her. Oh, I'm just a little girl who's not wise in the ways of war. She leans into that and it's brilliant. Honestly, Thinking back, I may have taken her too lightly when I read this chapter the first time. Getting the sellswords drunk and then making a surprise night attack? I didn't see that coming at all. That was really sneaky and clever. What better way to prove to the reader that Danny is being underestimated than by leading us to do the same? <laughs> if, if you, a reader, find yourself going, oh, I underestimated Danny. That's a really poignant way to get you re- to realize that that's happening all over, that these characters are doing it too, guys like Miro. Uh, we, we quote-unquote get to meet Miro of Bravo. So we enjoy Grey Worm. Miro's like, oof, this guy's a real piece of work. And we also get to see that Danny is quite capable of banter. She is good at bantering, like, well, kind of like Tyrion. It's maybe banter is a theme of, of this set of chapters here. The banter leads to her adapting her plan. She takes his request for some extra wine and stride and pivots to taking advantage. Like, well, why don't you take more? Because she immediately has the idea Oh, what if I can just get him drunk? What if I can capitalize on this? Him being a greedy man who takes Danny lightly, walks right into it. And he, and he in fact, asks for even more, which is like, exactly. That's what I wanted you to do. Yeah, take all the wine you want, drink all of it right now. <laughs> now, she, like I said, she doesn't see the battle, but it's yet again another night battle. So many night fights in this set. That should have been a theme, right? I talked about how there's lots of battles in this set. I did not mention that every single one of them is a night attack. I think they might all be, right? Beric and the Brotherhood attack the the mummers at night. John and and the Fens and Summer fight at night. This is at night. Huh, yeah, okay. Another one. That's cool. Zanny's deeply moved by calling Mother in general here. Before the slaves call her mother, she has a moment where she thinks that the dragons are the only children she'll ever have. She believes that thanks to Mary Mazdor, and it may even be true that she can't have a child of her own body. So to her, the dragons were her only children, but in the same chapter, we see that as she's thinking them as children, they are nasty, dangerous beasts, even though they haven't gone to war yet. I mean, look what happens when Dario drops the heads of his former uh, co-commanders there. The dragons are like, hmm, tasty. And they start eating, 
eating heads. I mean, it's just meat, right? But still, symbolically, this is, this is a reminder that the dragons are not just cute. It may sound strange uh, for, for Danny to be not expecting gratitude. Why wouldn't she expect gratitude from freeing the slaves? Why is she so surprised by that? Well, I, there's actually a good reason. The very same Miri Mazdur and her village and Iroa. Danny has saved people before from her mind. Like now there's great criticisms of what Danny has seen as being saved, especially when it comes to Miri Mazdur and Iroa. But emotionally, Danny's in the right place here. She got it wrong then. And so she's wary of being like, oh, I'm a savior. So she doesn't want to just call herself a savior when she was mistaken with that impression before. So I actually think Danny's doing right here by not thinking too much of herself. And of course, all must be reminded that she's young. We keep talking about that. She's grown up fast. She's done more in her short life already than most of the rest of the characters will do in their entire arc. But there's no substitute for experience. And she's getting that. But before this battle, I mean, this is her first commanding an assault on a city. We've been over the horror of the aftermath of Astapor, but Danny has not learned about that yet either. So that's another thing that will give her pause about being seen as a savior, maybe. But that evidence hasn't been introduced to her yet as part of her naivete. Barristan himself has seen that kind of thing, and so has Jorah. But Jorah, well, Jorah doesn't, isn't bothered by it as much. Barristan saw the Sack of Duskendale, which, mm, that is a pretty big thing. He's seen, you know, brutality, and he, that, I'm sure he has lots of thoughts on that, which pivots us to another major portion of this chapter. While, she's having, while that battle's playing out, she's talking about her family's past with Barristan. The Tourney at Harrenhal comes up again. Of course, that's a big plot point around this time in the series. Lyanna and Rhaegar's relationship coming up. Topic that puzzles Danny. Same. <laughs> it puzzles a lot of us. She has clearly thought about it before, though. She has opinions. She's wonder, she wonders why her brother stole Lyanna from Robert. It's interesting that she doesn't just take Rhaegar's side entirely. She's, she's got questions. She wonders why her brother would leave Elia. Barristan mentions Elia's ill health in response which is interesting because Rhaegar may have intended to have three children, meaning three heads of the dragon with his wife. He may have thought the prophecy called for that. And then this is where Lyanna comes in because Elia would have died if he had tried to have another kid with her. As so, whether he was cheating on his wife, whether Elia was okay with it, whether he just was desperate to fulfill the prophecy and was willing to break a lot of eggs to do so, I don't know. But we do know that Barrison specifically mentions Elia's ill health when asked why Rhaegar behaved the way he did with Lyanna. So if we are not trying to get too deep thinking about this, if we're trying to look at what's right in front of us, well, this is what George is telling us. George specifically mentions Elia's ill health as a factor. Now, an even bigger factor of all this, mention of Summerhall, a historical subplot of grand, but even more mysterious significance um, because it includes Rhaegar rather than just being focused on Rhaegar and Elia. It's, it's wrapped up in that, but so much else. Rhaegar was born during the conflagration at Summerhall. The stress of it, whatever accident it was, whatever that thing was, it, it may have triggered the, pre, the labor in Princess Rhaella, which resulted in Rhaegar's birth. So this is the time in the story where it comes up the most, meaning Summerhall. It was name-dropped by Stannis in Davos 4 not long ago. And this is Danny 4 
a song of swords, it actually won't be mentioned again by name in a Danny chapter until Danny Four, a dance with dragons. It's all these fours popping up. Barristan's going to think of it too when we get to his POV. Maester Eamon's going to mention it in a feast for crows. Sam Four, obviously. <laughs> yeah, seriously, that's just. I don't think that's on purpose by George. It's just a random coincidence that Summerhall keeps coming up in chapter fours for people. Anyway. If this were Aegon the fourth, then I'd be like, hey, but no, it's Aegon the fifth. <laughs> anyway, so Maester Aemon was alive during Summerhall, though he was definitively not present. He was on the wall by then, but he may have been corresponding with his brother about it before it happened. So unfortunately, any knowledge Aemon had about Summerhall died with him, but there's a chance that maybe some of his correspondence is lying around in, you know, in the Maester's office there in his chambers on, at Castle Black. If those papers aren't lying around, I still have questions about what else Eamon has in his papers lying around. <laughs> so Summerhall by itself is a gigantic mystery, but it also is particularly huge in Danny's arc due to all this thematic resonance, some of which is something I hadn't considered before. First of all, the dragons, right? King Aegon was trying to hash some, and it went wrong and killed many of her ancestors. Obviously, Danny's the one who finally got that right, so to speak, Aegon the Unlikely was one of the last to try, and his was also probably the biggest of all the failures. Goal equals hatch eggs. Result equals you and some of your family and much of all your Kingsguard are dead, and very unpleasantly. Wildfire, right? That's a horrible way to die. But before Egg tried, Aegon the Unlikely is Egg, in case that went over your head, the dreams of dragons that were prominent for so many Targaryens came in a variety of forms, but they seemed to agree that the dragons would come again. That was the one thing they all had in common. Many of those who had the dreams thought that it meant they, the person having the dream, I mean, was fated to be the one to bring them back. And because of that repeated mistake, several of them died trying. Egg being one of them, of course, the most spectacular of those fails. So what the per- they may have been dreaming all along, and I believe, I believe Joe Magician gets credit for this theory, each and every one of these past Targaryen dreamers, or maybe uh, Amanda from the Disputed Lands, I'm not sure. Anyways, some great people thought of this theory. Clearly, they didn't get a good look in these dreams because <laughs> uh, the figure that they may have been imagining was responsible for bringing, bringing the dragons back. Well, if they could have seen her face, they would have known it was Danny and not themselves. I mean, hey, dreams are hazy and a lot of those targs are kind of pretty. So, you know, maybe they, only, but maybe they only saw dragons. But if they saw a silver-haired figure, you could see why in their dreams, that silver-haired figure, they may have thought it was themselves. But it was probably Danny. Point being, it's a long time coming. Danny fulfilled a prophecy that's been out there for so long and so many other people misinterpreted it in the meantime. And Rhaegar was probably one of them too. So speaking of dreaming of the future, how are we supposed to hear the phrase or the concept that Danny's ancestor accidentally blew up a castle and a bunch of innocent people and not think about the ominous future of King's Landing? which also has an unfortunate amount of wildfire foreshadowed in its future as well. So Summerhall, as much as it says about Rhaegar and the dragons and the dreams, it may also be foreshadowing for Danny's future as it pertains to the destruction of King's Landing, perhaps by wildfire and or dragonfire, which, boy, will that be a big surprise. Well, it won't be a surprise, but it'll be quite a unity, uh, a circle completing that most of us probably didn't even imagine, let alone, you know, suspected was coming. But it is a future coming soon. This is not the far-flung future. King's Landing is going to face conflagration of some kind. And if it's an accident, 
we've we've talked about the possibility that King's Landing's destruction will be part accident. Maybe it'll get blamed on Danny. Maybe people will think she did it on purpose, but we'll know it was an accident. Maybe it'll have to do with John Connington. Maybe John Connington will be the one to do it, but Danny will get blamed for it. Lots of possibilities here. But how crazy similar is that going to be if Summer Hall was an accident, wildfire accident that caused it to burn down and King's Landing will be too? Whoa, right? That's a big deal. Now, of course, there's some differences. Summerhall will have yet another layer if all this happens, but Summerhall would have been a much, much bigger tragedy had it taken place in the Red Keep instead of out in the middle of, you know, on the border of the Reach and the Stormlands and, and the Dorne. Because it would have been a much larger fire. It would have spread, right? It could have had Summerhall happened at the Red Keep instead. The wildfire might have taken out the entire city, which, again, that's kind of the theme we're thinking about. The destruction of King's Landing. Not to mention, Jamie has specifically dreamt of wildfire blowing up King's Landing because he himself stopped it from happening. But maybe he only delayed it. Mm. Well, here's a quote directly from Barrison and Danny. It was the shadow of Summerhall that haunted him, was it not? Yes. And yet Summerhall was the place the prince loved best. He would go there from time to time with only his harp for company. Even the knights of the Kingsguard did not attend him there. He liked to sleep in the ruined hall beneath the moon and stars. And whenever he came back, he would bring a song. When you heard him play his high harp with the silver strings and sing of twilights and tears and the death of kings, you could not but feel that he was singing of himself and those he loved. The line that gets me there is singing of himself. It's long been part of the Rhaegar theory pastiche that he knew he was doomed. And this is a big piece of that evidence. But he did not think he would die at the Trident. He definitely went to the Trident with confidence. So that's also part of this. It's not just about wildfire and foreshadowing for King's Landing, after all, and other supernatural mysteries here. Rhaegar felt the shadow of Summerhall's entire life as a human being. And so did his father, Ares, most likely. What I mean is that I've long held the belief that Ares' obsession with wildfire was rooted in the fact that he saw much of his family die by wildfire when he was a teenager. Saw his wife give birth during it. I mean, that's going to mess with your head a bit. And Rhaegar, I mean, and, and uh, Ares wasn't exactly the most stable guy to begin with. So the idea that that could traumatize him makes a lot of sense. And the fact that he would replay that trauma by, you know, using wildfire, by burning people to death and, and reliving this in a twisted way well, if Ares was impacted by it, and there's plenty of evidence for it, then and, and Rhaegar was clearly impacted too. Then, of course, Rhaella, you know, Rhaegar's mother, Ares' wife, that would also be a big deal. I mean, as a man, it's awfully hard to imagine what it's like to give birth, right, guys? But giving birth during Summerhall, like, what? <laughs> I cannot. I really can't even. Like, that's several degrees of impossible imagination. Rayella was probably stronger-minded than her brother-husband, to be fair. I mean, that's not saying a lot, but Rayella had to put up with a lot on a regular basis, which you would think that would build some sort of strength or, or re resilience, given that she didn't seem to have broken from it. I definitely wonder what she thought of her son going back there, though. Like, she, the place that he was born, going back with his harp and singing sad songs amidst the ruins. I don't know, that doesn't... That's not the kind of thing a mom probably wants to see her son uh, doing, but I still wonder in more detail than that. To be a fly on the wall for conversations between Rhaegar and his parents about Summerhall. 
Well, that would be something, right? I mean, Aries would would talk about it. They had to say things about it to each other. Maybe it's maybe it was just a topic they avoided, but Rhaegar seemed to want to embrace it to think about it. Right? I imagine he had questions. Like, I mean, he was he was a baby, so he he wouldn't have specific memories of it. Yet he was fascinated by it, drawn to it. He had to ask some questions. So Rhaegar then surrounded by death amidst his birth. What a crazy thing to think about for yourself. No wonder he thought himself as a child of prophecy when you start off like that. And we're also reminded of what just happened in Sam's last chapter where Gilly was giving birth as Bannon was dying and then more death followed. You know, as if it's like a bunch of blood being spilled at the birth of the king. An icy cold perhaps brought by the others right after that, a parallel to the heat of the wildfire at Summerhall. An attempt to bring dragons. I mean, this stuff really connects quite well. In the show, Craster's Keep burned down, which is oddly fitting as a parallel to Summerhall in a way that the book didn't have happen. Surely, you know, that was an accident too, meaning Summerhall, like I said, but it's also notable that Gilly, again, in this show, is the one who stumbles on Rhaegar and Lyanna's marriage document. <laughs> so maybe there is a little bit of intended thematic tie-in there. Of course, Lyanna's brought up a lot in this chapter. Danny's reaction to her is interesting. She's sympathetic to Liana, almost more so than her brother, which is interesting. She's sympathetic to Elia. So she's sympathetic to the, the women's role in all this and doesn't understand why her brother would treat them this way. Makes a lot of sense. Danny's been treated badly by male rulers as well, or at least had impacted, you know, her life has been heavily impacted by them. Uh, maybe Drogo is more of a mixed bag in that sense, but still, you know, it's, uh, she's been through some of these things and is, it makes sense that she would consider the, the young noble girl's perspective rather than her brother's. But her brother's perspective is super interesting from the supernatural side of things and how she is doing a lot of the things that he thought he was destined to do. Now, as far as uh, another good take from Nina here, I think it's worth emphasizing Barristan's description of Rhaegar as both melancholic and deeply attached to Summerhall. Summerhall was where Rhaegar had been born, but also you know, where all those death happened. People close to him, people that his family had been close to, people that would have been in his life had they survived, like uncles and, well, aunts maybe, Kingsguard. Instead, they died attending his birth, which is just quite a burden to bear. He already has this prophecy burden on him, but now he has all this other stuff too. Rhaegar had been conceived explicitly to be the prince that was promised and seems to have understood from a young age that this was a destiny of his. If he was wrong, if he failed, he would doom humanity. So that's part of why he just was probably willing to do things that seem kind of dirty in retrospect, but also he was just wrong. <laughs> so there's just the best example we have of someone maybe trying to do the right thing. And even if you set aside the right thing, just the idea of getting a major prophecy wrong and all the things that come from that. Now, Barrison was not at Summerhall. That's an important uh, detail here. He earned a white cloak not long after it, in the War of Nine Penny Kings, but at least one living witness remains, the ghost of High Heart. She seems to have been there. She was brought to court by Jenny. Yes, the Jenny named in Jenny's song again. Jenny married Prince Duncan the Small, famously gave up his crown for her. So of course, this makes us think of the chapter where the ghost of High Heart asks to hear Jenny's song and says that she, quote, gorged on grief at Summerhall. You may be thinking... It would, just, it would be just like George to have that chapter coming up soon. Just like we had Beric and Cold Hands kind of introduced kind of close together. We might have these things coming close together. If you're guessing, yeah, I bet that is coming up soon. Well, you're as right as you could be. It's literally the next chapter. 
it just happens to be we're not covering it today given our, our format, but it's the first one next time. We meet Dario and his beard of false colors. She considers if he's part of the prophecy of three somehow. Betrayal, maybe? You know, she's wondering how he could fit into all that. I don't know that's so likely. I think maybe Dario is more of a, a precursor to Euron, who he's pretty flamboyant and he's a lot more dangerous and a lot more likely to be part of prophecies surrounding her future. But Dario is tricky to predict, as Prendal and Salor could attest to if the dead could speak. And though I've said a character's introduction often includes foreshadowing of their end, I don't know if I see it here. I, I don't know what I'm looking for. That might be part of it. Sometimes we can see the foreshadowing because we know what to look for. That's a big deal, right? With, with Queen's Crown, we just talked about how we can, we can guess that it's thematic resonance for King Bran, but that's because we have a strong sense of that coming. Dario is an example of a character whose TV fate does not give us much hint to his book fate. A lot of that today. He may already be dead, Dario is, right? That's, that would be kind of surprising, but it makes sense. He was last seen as a hostage to these very same young Kai. They refuse to release him in A Dance of Dragons unless Rhaegal and Viserion are put down, which obviously isn't going to happen. No one's going to value Dario more than even one dragon, let alone two of them. Plus, uh, those dragons aren't so easy to put down anymore <laughs> or deal with in general. Ask Quentin Martell. Furthermore, the Storm Crows are part of the attack during the Battle of Fire. They attack the besiegers, the young Kai besiegers and their swords. And who's riding alongside them? Barristan the Bold. Dario may be flamboyant, but the Yunkai are ridiculous. Thinking of the various armies arrayed against Barristan and Marine makes me chuckle. And we get the slightest sense of that here when we see that the Yunkai helmets are designed not to crush their big hair. I mean, you're going into war and you're worried about your perm. <laughs> Hairstyle isn't supposed to be a concession when going into battle. But as unmilitaristically skilled as these Yunkai are, they're vicious. So the idea that by not yielding to their demands, they may slay Dario is entirely sensible. They already killed Grolio, the, the hostage. Yeah, it could happen. We could see Dario's end could be really ignoble and off page. Anyway, Barrison visibly hates Miro. So it's fun to recall that the feared sellsword Captain Miro with a sword is going to lose to Selmy with a staff. Of course, it's that incongruity that finally pushes Jorah's suspicions over the edge. He's like, wait a minute. You with a stick, you beat that guy? But what was Selmy going to do? Not stop Miro from killing Danny? <laughs> so Miro comes for Danny because of this chapter. He escapes the surprise attack that Danny leads or has her men commit to while the second sons are getting drunk. But Miro somehow gets away. And then, you know, a few chapters later, he comes back for that revenge. And that's when Selmy takes him out. Well done, Selmy. I hope you guys were as struck by some of this Summer Hall stuff as I was and by some of this amazing thematic resonance. Like we, it's, it's fun. The Yunkai battle has, says a lot about the future and there's a lot to say about Danny, but it's almost a lot of times it's the battle, the non-battle stuff is, is uh, even more interesting. But that said, it's really amazing how well George uses action to foreshadow more action, as we talked about with the night attacks and how much that gives us undead vibes, because we got to figure a lot of, if not all of, the battles against the undead will happen at night because that's when the others can come out. A couple more thoughts from Nina here. Daenerys's host reminds her of Mance's host. While both groups certainly had dedicated and fearsome warriors within, they're mixed. 
and children and non-combatants are present in both. Neither Daenerys nor Mans is simply leading an army. They're leading entire societies of people away from death in the hope of peace and security somewhere else. For Daenerys' group, it's going to be a lot longer journey probably, but perhaps no less harrowing than what the Free Folk are facing by having to break through the wall and escape from the others and then deal with the hostile Seven Kingdoms. Daenerys has two bells in her braid now, one for her victory over the Undying, one for her victory at Astapor, and now, presumably, they're going to give her a third for beating Yunkai? I'm not sure, but I would think so. Eventually, her bells are going to be too many to count. Barristan glosses over a little bit of his own backstory in this chapter because he's, you know, trying to conceal his identity. When he recalls the tourney at Storm's End that Rhaegar almost won, he says the honor went to another knight of the King's Guard who beat Rhaegar at the end. Well, that was him, Barristan. <laughs> and this is at least the second time Barristan has avoided mentioning himself when his name came up. Uh, <laughs> let's put on our tinfoil hats. Is it suspicious that the one time Rhaegar wins a tournament. The one and only time Rhaegar wins a tournament. It's the same one where Lyanna also does unusually well at jousting. After, she is apparently helped by Howland Reed, who was maybe helped by what he had learned at the Isle of Faces. He specifically went there to try to learn magic. Maybe, I mean, maybe that's the reason I say this is tinfoily is obviously the idea that Rhaegar used magic to win the tournament is a little crazy, but there is at least supporting evidence for it. However, if we're looking at the human side of things, look what happened to Jorah when he got that favor of Lyness. It just made him into this, he just was so inspired, he beat everybody. Well, that is what happened here with Rhaegar. He met Lyanna and he was fired up. He won the tournament. But the possibility that she taught him a trick or there was magic involved could be part of that because, well, Lyanna would know. So funny if Rhaegar used some Kranigman trick to defeat Arthur Dane in the tourney because that is who he beat at the end knowing that Howland Reed is the reason Arthur Dane didn't kill Ned Stark. Huh, what a twist that would be. That may have involved some sort of Kranig trick or magic in that case too that, that meaning Howland Reed might have done something Kranig-y to, to stop Arthur Dane from killing Ned. I always thought it might be a net or something like that. Or given what we saw, this is even more tinfoil. I don't, I don't believe this, but it is a theory I used to have. And it, it resonates really well because, it's, because this chapter is so soon after the Bran chapter where he goes into Hodor's mind that if Howland Reed could pull a Varamir, but only a temporary one, where he just like tries to get in Arthur Dane's head as a skin changer just for a second, not to take him over, but to distract him long enough because only a second would be all it takes, probably. One or two, three seconds. That, that's, that's everything in a battle, in a duel. Um, but I do think it's more likely like a net or just sneaking up behind him like we saw in the show, something more simple. But there's room for more, so I want to throw that out there. Summerhall is actually mentioned several other times that I left out, but those are cases where it's mentioned as a site of battles during Robert's Rebellion. So the context is just extremely different of the, the Danny Rhaegar stuff. But hey, Robert did win three battles in a single day there. Three. And Summerhall is located right on the border of Dorne, the Stormlands, and the Reach all at once. So it's meant to be a place where things converge. So having so many plot lines converge there, having so many different plot lines associated with Summerhall, that's kind of oddly fitting. In this chapter is also the second mention of the Titan of Bravos, thanks to Miro. The first was Arya 10, A Clash of Kings. Fitting that it was an Arya chapter. Interesting that the Second Sons are so old as a company. They're mentioned alongside the anecdote of the 3,000 at Kohor stopping the Dothraki. 
which we don't know how long ago that was, but it was a while ago, um, probably more than several hundred years. So that gives you an idea. Unlike a lot of these other companies who were kind of short-lived, Second Sons have been around for maybe, maybe, maybe a thousand years even. They're mentioned in the uh, World of Ice and Fire, or rather Fire and Blood, and, uh, and perhaps the World of Ice and Fire in some other instances that are uh, quite a while ago. So I may, I may have mentioned this briefly before, but the seeing how well Danny banters and seeing how well Tyrion banters, well, put them together, we might have some really epic banter. And the idea that Tyrion and Danny are coming together seems almost foregone, you know, almost a foregone conclusion. Maybe we shouldn't consider it that likely, but I do, I do. Um, so we'll uh, look forward to that. And with that, it's our last note of that chapter. Time for our outro. Last week, we did 193 minutes, 23 seconds of the audiobook. This week was 184 minutes, 38 seconds, so very similar length of time. However, it took us about 30 minutes less. Uh, of course, we knew last week would be huge. This one was still pretty big, but yeah, not... Yeah, two hours and 45 minutes. Yeah, still pretty damn big. Yes. But not, uh, not our biggest. So, so far, we've covered 1,494 minutes, 47 seconds of 2,853 seconds, or 53 minutes and 37 seconds. So, as I said, we have passed the halfway point of A Storm of Swords. Always, you can always check the video length and compare it to the final podcast version to see how much we edited out. Gives you an idea of the small differences between the podcast and video version. Also, the level of effort that goes into making the podcast version a little tighter. Cutting out things like me saying um or pauses, things like that. <laughs> me taking a while to read my quote because <laughs> Little things like something's that. pressed enter in the document and the quote is like five pages down, <laughs> which happened to me today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I find myself lost every once in a while in these large documents too. Next time, but not next week, we have our scheduled break. We, we set one or actually two scheduled breaks for Storm of Swords. One of them is next week. The next one will be when we're at Ice and Fire Con. Yeah, I'll be in April. New York next week. So that's right. You know, reach out to me if you're in New York. Yeah. So we'll let everyone catch up on Valar Reredis. I'm going to probably do the game stream at the normal Valar Reredis time. So at least there's something for all us to hang out with. I like keeping that going, but it won't be Valar Reredis. But we'll be back on schedule as per normal right well, we, after. Yeah, we have a Tuesday stream, Tuesday, March 17th. That'll be our next stream. That's right. But it won't be Valor Reedus. That is a uh, Barristan Selmy, Kristen Cole comparison. And we're going to have Jeff Hartline as a guest, a.k.a. Brendan Beefish. Now, when we do return to Valor Reedus, these will be the chapters that will be on the slate for the day, beginning and ending with an Aria chapter. The first one is Aria 8, High Heart 2, Eccentric Boogaloo, a.k.a. the one where Arya gets a hound. Jamie 6, the one where Jamie dreams big, a.k.a. the bear and the maiden unfair. Catelyn 5, the one with Rob's will, a.k.a. Psycho Euron is back. <laughs> That's one of my favorite titles we've done, by the way. <laughs> Psycho Pete, Psycho Euron. Okay. Sam 3, Small Paul, a feast for ravens, a.k.a. Hands of cold are always cold. <laughs> and Aria 9, the gang takes a ferry, a.k.a. a storm of siblings. Thanks to you all for coming and supporting us live. Thanks to those of you who have liked and shared and told your friends about the podcast or our YouTube channel. It really makes a big difference. The algorithms that power both podcast and video uh, backends are very much influenced by such things. 
Of course, we are very grateful to those of you who make the live chat so bustling, asking so many great questions and making this a great community experience. Shea is the best for managing all of that and doing quotes and all this technical stuff all at the same time. Really quite a lot to be doing at once. Thanks, of course, to Joe and Nina for their contributions. Definitely check out Good Queen Alley on Tumblr and Isle of Faces podcast, wherever you get podcasts. Thanks, as always, effusively to our wonderful History of Westeros mods powering our Facebook group by posting every chapter with artwork, and quotes, and discussion points, often which leads to me discovering things I hadn't considered or at least great takes that I like to share on the show. Thanks also to Michael Klarfeld, a.k.a. the creator of Claradox.de, who also led us to the talented Kevin McLeod, who is responsible for our intro music. Thanks also to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for the music appearing at our outro and all the other History of Westeros podcasts. Thanks to our Benjineer for making our sound quality much greater than it could be. And of course, last but not least, thank you very much to all many patrons who keep Westeros history afloat, keeping all the all the leaks in our ship patched, keeping us happy because of your support fills us with such gratitude and appreciation. And that, in turn, spills out into our passion for this material and for spending this time with you guys every Sunday, but not next Sunday. <laughs> so we'll see you all in two weeks for Valar Reredus. But as Ashea said, we've got the other stream and the game stream in the meantime. So we'll either see you there or for the next Valerie Reedus. <laughs>